And we're live. Anthony, I've been at La Crew, Newgrange, the Hill of Tara, a handful of other different places recently, and I can't help but notice signs all over the place saying strictly no drones. And I also can't help but feel that you had something to do with that. Are you, are you to blame, <laughs> Mr. Murphy? Um, as much as it would probably give me a lot, a lot of street cred to say yes. <laughs> uh, in fact, no. Um, I believe that the decision to disallow the flying of drones at uh, historic monuments is more to do with one or two crazy idiots who decided to do stupid things such as fly their drone through the window of a castle and uh, missing the window and getting the drone lodged in the wall of a castle instead, resulting in uh, an expensive removal procedure and uh, the hiring of an expert to see what damage was done to the castle. Uh, So definitely nothing to do with me. (laughs) (laughs) I swear. (laughs) The the reason that I asked is because I think you, did you, is it right in saying that you've coined a new term, drone henge? Is it fair to say that's a new term coined by yourself? Um, No, that's not fair. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, in fact, uh, within a couple of days of uh, the discovery of the new henge at Newgrange by myself and Ken Williams, uh, the media had started to call it drone henge. Uh, Actually, Believe it or not, I mean, you know, the tabloid media are great at coining phrases and headlines, you know. Uh, but I have a cutting from that time from Der Spiegel, which is a German publication. And their headline was Drone Henge. And that was like a couple of days after the discovery. The media started calling it Drone Henge because it sounds like Stonehenge. It probably resembles Stonehenge to some extent, but it was discovered with a drone, so... Can you, can you tell me about that? Because all I remember, I, te- I was on Facebook whenever it was uh, a year and a half or two years ago and something came up from, from your Mythical Ireland page and I was like, what's this? And my knee-jerk reaction was that you had discovered some sort of huge big henge right next door to Newgrange. But that obviously wasn't the case because anything within a mile of Newgrange has already been discovered, clearly. So that that was my initial thought process, but alas, yeah. you did discover an enormous, uh, an enormous. Hen- what is a henge <laughs> to start off? Sorry, I'm, just, I'm overwhelmed with questions here to ask you about it because I just I want to know how, when, who, what. You when, said where. alas in there. It's like no, it's not alas. It's quite the opposite. It's quite a happy story. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I've repeatedly said that since the discovery that I I, I would have said beforehand that everything that was there at Brunabonia, it being a World Heritage Site, um, some of the largest uh, and grandest monuments in Europe, um, you know, uh, having been excavated, Newgrange and Nouth, with all of the attention of the world's archaeologists on it over the past four or five decades, I would have said, yeah, like yourself, I would have said everything significant that's there has been discovered. Absolutely. I would have said there's no chance of finding anything. And in fact, at the time I was flying the drone during the drought, I was looking for pre-existing features, but new detail in the existing monuments. Yeah, you know? so a, a scrap of something that hadn't been noticed before. Exactly. I had no uh, anticipation of dis- making any major discovery boy was i wrong <laughs> <laughs> the, the the picture which i must actually upload along with this episode it, it's it's fantastic but i presume it what 
the picture that made all the papers and that does the rounds and is in your new book that you're yes. very generously giving me, Drone Henge, available on your website, I believe. Correct. Yes, signed signed by the author, mythicalireland.com. Go into the, 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 the store and, and the bookshop. Perfect. Absolutely Thanks for perfect. the plug. No, my absolute Appreciate pleasure. it. <laughs> We're absolute... only three minutes in and we already got a plug in. That's great. The first of many. It's not your only book. We'll, get to, we'll, we'll squeeze them in. We'll squeeze them in. Um, but yeah, so presumably when you... So the drone, which is like a... Forgive the terminology, but a, a tiny helicopter, say. Yeah, so like almost yeah. like a tiny helicopter. It goes up. You have a controller in your hand. Uh, presumably you have a screen on your controller so you can see live from the drone. So the drone is Correct. up practically in the clouds looking down in the landscape and you have the... you have the. If the, it's in the, the clouds, you've lost well, it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It's up there. You're down there. You have it in your hand in front of you. It's yeah. basically like... Is, does your phone clip it's into it? Correct. Or? Most, okay. most, mo- a lot of drones, most of them, some of them have integrated screens, but a lot of them, you attach a smartphone or a, an iPad or a, or a tablet. Yes. And so it's basically a glorified remote controller with with uh, buttons and two joysticks on it. Yes. Uh, the joysticks create uh, controlling various movements of the craft. But you're exactly right. The drone has a camera attached to it and it sends a live feed, which you're watching on your smartphone screen or your iPad screen, whatever you happen to be using. Okay, so when you when you first thought you maybe kind of saw something on the screen, was it as obvious as the photos that we see now in the in the pictures no. or did you have to get that at, at a certain time of day with a certain light with a certain light and whatever else? Um no, as it happens the light on the evening in question, which was Tuesday the tenth of July, twenty eighteen, at eight forty seven p.m. <laughs> I mean, I never, I'll never forget it. It's an unforgettable experience. But um, the light was pretty good. The thing is that when you're using, and I was using a smartphone very similar to this, just a tiny bit smaller than this, so quite a small screen. That the detail you can see, you know, obviously when you bring home your your drone and you put the card into the computer and you look at these images and video on a big monitor. Yes. You see the you see it in proper detail. You don't see the same amount of detail, but certainly, I mean, as soon as I saw it, I knew straight away there's a circle there in the field that is not on any map and we've never seen before. Uh, I mean, that moment was just uh, I describe it in the book in in minute detail actually. It's it's like it's like, you know, you're able to stretch out time and, and those few first few moments after you've seen it, your mind is actually saying to you, it's trying to rationalize what you're seeing. And among the rationalizations that I made were, and this is, I'm talking like seconds after I first saw it, my brain is telling me, that looks like a tractor has driven around the field in a circle. But because there were these, you know, um, what would we call them, what looked like ruts, you know, twin pairs of 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 grooves uh, i thought maybe he'd been revving up and leaving these tire marks somebody had had a bit of fun in the field with a tractor and then i was thinking oh maybe there was a big circus down there and there was a big tent set up because that's kind of what it looked like almost like the imprint of a a, a big top you know yeah yeah and these are the things i was trying to say to myself and then like 10 15 seconds after seeing it when I'm flying the drone towards it and I've let out this famous exclamation, what the hell is that? <laughs> and I, I don't know whether it could have been hell or another word, another, <laughs> another four-letter word, you know? What the f- is that? And um, about 15, 20 seconds after first seeing it, I think that's when it started to sink in. No, Anthony, you're seeing 
uh, you're seeing you're seeing a, a hinge or a, I, I I say it in the book that just very quickly in your head you're 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 going through the scenarios you're saying okay it's not tractor tire marks because it's a standing crop it's a field with a crop in it yes it's not a, a field that has been ploughed you know you're not looking at soil here you're looking at crops so this is a crop mark you're ruling out the possibility that it's what we call a crop circle uh, you get a lot of those in britain you know modern day pranksters basically artists who go out into fields of crops in the summertime and stamp down the crop and create these very ornate geometric patterns and also um you're ruling out the like what's the likelihood that there was a big top in a field near newgrange where you know and i just said look you know, you have to be realistic here, Anthony. This this looks like a crop mark of a giant monument. And if it is a giant monument, it can only be one monument. And that is a henge or some form of giant enclosure. Um, there's, you know, it, 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 it's very difficult because you don't know. But you just know, as I say, in that first 30 seconds, I reckon, by the time 30 seconds had elapsed. Somewhere in my brain somebody was pulling out files you know the little the little the little mouse was running around all the filing cabinets was pulling out files going what does this look like what does this look like and he's going yeah he finds the draw labeled henge and he pulls out all the drawings and photographs of different henges in brunabonia and in other parts of ireland and in other parts of britain and he's going yep that's a match it's a henge you know and presumably you must have thought that you've rediscovered something or were you familiar enough with no, the area to know that this I was familiar enough then? with the area yeah. okay i was familiar enough with the with the area you get to know after a while you've read you've seen all the maps in the archaeology books you know all the label sites now there was a project the boyne valley landscapes project as part of instar which had produced a very big report in 2010 that i was very familiar with and they had found loads of stuff that had been basically hidden beneath the surface and hadn't been mapped before found loads of monuments and potential monuments and so, sorry to cut across but how did they find these was it with drones or was uh, it with lidar a, a, or? A different techniques um but lidar was a big uh, part of identifying some of them actually the, there's another henge to the west of drone henge that was found by the instar group by the boyne valley landscapes project and they call that lp2 which means low profile site 2 they found what looked like an imprint or uh, a, a, a remnant of a mound surrounded by a ring. And so they went and investigated with geophysics and found, yeah, it's, a, it's some sort of a mound with a, 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 a broken or a dashed enclosure around it. A little bit like Dronehenge, but not as not as ornate. Um, but I knew from the Instar and all the other uh, publications about Brunabonia that in this part of the field where I was seeing this giant circle there definitely wasn't anything the only thing that there was was a linear bank that it's a strange one it's like a straight linear bank about 200 meters long that happens to coincide with the site of drone hinge but we don't know what that is but no indication in instar of anything right <laughs> as spectacular you know when you gave me the it was a lp2 for the for the thing you just mentioned mm-hmm. that's obviously the the official category categorization of of that yeah the, the catalog number say what's the catalog for what we're calling drone henge have they officially named it you know no. lp3 or whatever no. it is no 
It hasn't been. Um, the, the, Has it been officially recognised? Oh, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's been recorded in the National Monuments database. Uh, the, the henge to the east, there's three in a row. The henge to the east is an embanked henge, so we've known about that for decades because okay. it's quite obvious. Like a ripple in the landscape you can yeah, see. Yeah, a big ring that you can see, and especially in aerial photographs. Site P, they call that. And at one point, um, Steve Davis, who's uh, in UCD, is an archaeologist friend of mine, who's kind of partly responsible for the discovery of Drone Henge because he encouraged me to fly over Site P during the drought. And that was one of the reasons I was out with the drone that evening. But um, he said that uh, if he was going to label it, he'd call it Site P1. And I was like, no, 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 no. We have to be a little bit more imaginative. (laughs) And then National Monuments Service did their uh, report. They went, they sent a helicopter up. They, They did several helicopter flights over the landscape and took lots of photographs and produced an interim report on winter solstice. So five or so months after the discovery and in their report they call it the geometric henge the geometric henge right yeah so all things considered if you'd ask me what would i like to call it i'd like to call it new henge because it's in the townland of new grange and it's close okay. to new grange and it's a new undiscovered but um the media kind of took over and it, it the, the name drone henge kind of stuck so that's the name i kind of use now yeah no, but i'd much fantastic. prefer that to site P one, to yeah, be honest, yeah. has more, has more of a ring to it. All right, yeah. When you said um, your suggestion might be new henge, how old is it, or, or do we know? Well, like, we don't it, know is the answer. Um, and in fact, if when you get a chance to read the drone henge book, you, you'll you'll get into the frustration of the scenario around henges in Ireland. There is so little excavation of henges that almost everything we know about henges is based upon information gleaned from archaeological investigation of henges in Britain, Okay, believe it or not. And presumably a long time ago or recently? Oh, well, I mean, over the last probably half century or so. Uh, but you see, there's something, and then maybe this is just a, an unfair bias opinion that I have, but I tend to think of most archaeology that was done, and this is probably completely unfair, but it, it's just what's in my head, I have it that 50 plus years ago, it was as much kind of grave robbing and treasure hunting as it was real archaeological research, say, like of the caliber that will be done now. Like if if something was to be excavated now, I can imagine the site being completely plotted, mapped out, everything categorized, everything, you know. I think you'd have to go further back than 50 years for the type of archaeology you're talking about. Okay. I mean, you see a lot of that in the 19th century and perhaps in the early 20th century. But um, like the excavations at Newgrange and Nouth were um, highly professional. Um, and they would, they would have been done when roughly? Well, they, even... they both actually began in the same year in 1962. OK. So, um, no, you'd have to go a little bit further back for the sort of more sort of grave robbing type um, you know the more cavalier approach cavalier there. is a good word antiquarians who are basically looking for treasure more so than and not really systematically recording what they were finding as they were digging down like Douth for instance Douth was kind of wrecked by a, an excavation in the in at the time of the famine actually in the late 1840s um and they abandoned it after two seasons because they basically didn't find anything that they considered of worth um, yes. and left a big crater in it, you know. Um, so that's the sort of cavalier approach that was taken, you know, in 
in the old days, as it were. Yes. Um, but we have a real problem with hinges because we have so little to go on. There was one hinge at Monk Newtown, um, a little bit to the north of Newgrange, perhaps a mile or so north of Newgrange, uh, that was excavated in the 70s because there was a building going onto it and it was what we call a rescue excavation. Um, but aside from that, I mean, there's probably a dozen hinges at Brunabonia, which is the highest concentration anywhere in the world, by the way, of hinge right. monuments. Nowhere else is as many hinges as Brunabonia. And uh, we can't say anything for certain about any of them because we haven't done any digging. Um, we're assuming for now that Drone Hinge is late Neolithic, which would put it sort of in the time frame approximately 2900 BC to about 2500, 2400 BC. So you're looking at something that's potentially 4,400 to 4,900 years old. Right. So so when I say to you that within 30 seconds of discovering it, I'm saying to myself, the little mouse in, in the filing cabinets in the head <laughs> in my brain ha- has made a match, that at that moment you're realising something, that this is no ordinary ring fort. Ring forts, we have at least 40,000 ring forts. I discovered one, by the way, in in uh, in August last month. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, at Fenor, between Rossnery and Slane, south of the Boyne. And it's impressive enough. It's about 45 or 50 metres across and all the rest. But they are medieval, uh, okay. f- sort of embanked farmsteads or homesteads. And they're a dime a dozen. When you find a Neolithic henge in the middle, like 750 metres from Newgrange, <laughs> smack bang in the middle of one of the world's most studied archaeological landscapes. You know, I think the gravity of it hit home very quickly for me, the significance of it. It's like all your dreams come true. So it's better than winning the lottery, you know. And what it begs the question, what else is left to be discovered there? Um, and presumably that, that henge isn't you know, the last thing to be discovered in the area. No, um, and you, of course you can't, you definitely can't rule out the possibility of further discoveries. In fact, we had a drought this spring uh, and uh, I, I took the drone out and did quite a lot of aerial surveying of the fields at Newgrange Farm. Uh, the grass fields this spring were parched and were showing features and I reckon that there's at least a few more uh, monuments or archaeological features there that aren't on any of the maps in that imagery but as time goes on we are definitely reducing the likelihood of further discoveries like steve davis with the romano german commission i think they're called uh, has been doing uh, what we call well it's geophysics but it's like um large-scale geophysics the in the old days you used to walk around with implements and walk across fields taking measurements now you you can put a, uh, this equipment onto a trailer and tow it around a field uh, with a jeep right yes so you can do it you can cover a lot bigger areas quicker and um he has discovered quite a lot of stuff actually i think 40 monuments in the past couple of years wow. um a lot of that is medieval stuff. And sorry, you said medieval a couple of times. When was that in, in the timeline for people? Well, well, just just a, early medieval would be basically from around the time of the beginning of the arrival of Christianity, uh, 
To, sorry, the fifth, world or Ireland? To oh, Ireland. Sorry, to, to no, well, I'm just talking about Ireland here. Okay. So 5th century AD to the arrival of the Normans. Okay. So uh, 12th century, uh, 11, what is it, 1168, 69 for the arrival of the Normans? <laughs> you can't remember <laughs> offhand. It's either 68 or 69, uh, Dermot McMurrow and all that. But um, that that's the early medieval. Now, look, don't get me wrong, I'm not belittling or reducing the importance of that because I love archaeology full stop and I'm fascinated uh, I have found uh, using Google Maps and uh, or Google Earth and Apple Maps I have found around 300 monuments uh, from the imagery that was taken during the time of the 2018 drought and a great deal of that will be medieval stuff so I'm not dissing that in any way but it's it's like you know, the first of all my discoveries was the biggest by far was Dronehenge. Dronehenge is bigger. I mean, it's five, it's over 500 feet in diameter. It's likely to have been a massive monument when it was standing, made mostly of timber. Um, uh, it's close to Newgrange. It's part of a complex of monuments. And we found other stuff, myself and Ken Williams, which led to even further discoveries. And so when you discover a, a medieval ring fort, you know, afterwards it's, <laughs> it's all downhill just, from there <laughs> you know it just doesn't have the same impact you know yes something about drone hinge that captured the world's imagination and i think uh, being a journalist and i understand the value of it i think that the big thing for people was that the pictures they could see they could just see looking at the pictures how truly gigantic this thing was they, yes. did, they didn't need it to be explained. Yeah, there's an, there's an obviousness to it. You hear a lot, uh, you see it quite a lot. I mean, one of the things that gets shared a lot on social media are stories about archaeological discoveries. But sometimes you see stories about discoveries, but you don't see a picture of what's been discovered. Or you don't see a picture that does it justice. And so you're left with the text trying to fill in the gaps for you. With Dronehenge, the wonderful thing was that the pictures got shared around I, little did I know on that evening Tuesday the 10th of July 2018 <laughs> little did I know that the pictures I was taking with the drone that evening some of them would be seen by hundreds of millions of people yeah, and literally. I'm not I'm not joking about yeah, that yeah. I'm deadly serious about that um, the impact of that I think was they were able to immediately see with their own eyes wow look at the size of that mother or you know <laughs> look at this you know it was truly enormous and that was one of the impressive things for me was how does something that big hide from all the prying eyes who've been watching this landscape for the past five or six decades how does it hide in plain view and the reason for that, of course, is explained in the book available on mythicalirland.com. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, the reason for that is because because it was a timber structure and because some of the features are ditches, things that were dug into the ground. Basically, it rotted away and filled up. And over time, the land was ploughed and there's just no visible surface trace of it. And yet the detail that's uh, viewable in the drought imagery the fascinating thing about that and I was explaining it at the time and I, I, I still can't get over it it's like a mirage you know is that the archaeological features that you're seeing are several feet beneath the surface but the image that you're seeing is on the top of a crop that's maybe four or five feet high so you're seeing a magical sort of ghostly image uh, Richard Moore calls it a hologram you're seeing a hologram you're seeing an image on the surface of a crop that's standing four or five feet high, 
but that's an image of something that's beneath the ground. Yeah, it's betraying what's beneath it. And when the crop was harvested, of course, the whole thing vanishes. Just disappears. And there's just no visible sign of it on the surface. It's fascinating. Oh, incre- incredibly so. Gripping, you know. It is the makings of a Dan Brown novel, you know. <laughs> on the, the, the modern, or the, the more modern techniques you mentioned before you went round with basically a meter stick and you took your plots and whatever else now you're dragging um very sensitive equipment behind a tractor or a jeep or whatever mm-hmm. it is i saw within the last couple of years lidar images taken in south america somewhere and they were basically looking beneath the the forest of yeah. what was once there has that kind of te- technology like has all the, the latest subterranean imagery technology has that come to Newgrange and throughout Ireland or are we still yeah, waiting to get pretty that? Much. Actually, believe it or not, uh, uh, the Instar, and if I'm wrong about this, that's my mistake, but I, I picked this up lately and I think I'm right, that the Instar uh, Boyne Landscapes project was, was a sort of a pioneering project in okay. that they were using LIDAR before it was used in any sort of a widespread way in Ireland. Now, the imagery from that time is quite low resolution. We have better resolution capabilities now than we did then. Yes. Same with cameras. You know, you get 50 megapixel cameras now. Back then you were 12 and 15 megapixels. Yeah, and that was amazing at the time. Yeah, exactly. But um, the only other sort of really advanced project that I can know there may be others of course the only one that I can remember is the discovery program at Tara which found uh, another similar henge like enclosure at Tara uh, that hadn't been known about before um, and actually I have a picture of that in, in my book Island of the Setting Sun um, so like this was an, an age where I mean I, I might say this the past couple of decades was an age where we were moving away from these large-scale excavations like Nouth and Newgrange and we're moving into more advanced technology. We're looking at archaeology in ways we've never done before which don't involve us digging the ground. Yes. And it's, it's incredible. And it turns out that what we call the citizen archaeologist, in other words, a guy like me who's no qualifications in archaeology but is interested in archaeology and history in the past, flies a drone and makes a major discovery that citizen archaeologists are now able to make a contribution. And not just a contribution, I mean, actually a significant contribution to our understanding of the past. And that's lovely. It's like the technology, the te- the technology is is not restricted because you, know, like, you can buy. I, I, the drone that I discovered, I still have it. I won't sell it. Of course, yeah, yeah. I don't use that. it anymore, but it's a Phantom 3 Advanced. I bought it off a former colleague of mine, a photographer, um, for €470 second hand. Now that, for some people, is a big outlay, Mm -hmm. but for a lot of people, it's like nothing. This is not... Like, a generation ago, if you wanted to take aerial photographs of Brunabonia, you had to hire a helicopter or an airplane. Oh, yeah, charter a flight, yeah. Right? (laughs) And I don't know how much that costs. A lot more than 400 and something Yeah, I can imagine it's like a thousand euros an hour or whatever. But, you know, um, I don't know. Drones are just the most extraordinary thing. Um, And there is definitely the capability for a lot more discovery. And the reason for that, Fran, is very simple. I discovered a ring fort at Fenor 
uh, on the bank holiday weekend at the beginning of August. I took the drone out about a week and a half, two weeks ago to have a look at the same field again and the crop had been harvested and there is absolutely no sign of that monument. So what I'm saying is there could be monuments there and there definitely are actually. It's not that there could be, there definitely no, are. Question, yeah. All over Ireland there are monuments waiting to be discovered uh, and if a drone pilot happens to be in an area at the right time they will discover something and if they go again six weeks or two months or six months later they'll, they'll see no sign of it there's the serendipity involved but what i've realized is what's important for me and if you ask me like what my role is in all this apart from being the discoverer is i believe that part of my role is because i'm convenient to brunabonia part of my role would be well i'm going to keep monitoring brunabonia I'm going to keep flying the drone over the fields because, you know, who knows what's going to turn up? You know? oh, ab- absolutely. And I, I, I think you're a, a beacon of light to everyone out there who has an interest in not, you know, ancient monuments, but whatever it is. I mean, I think only a couple of years ago, you're a keen astronomer as well, so you probably know the details of this more than I will. But did some amateur Irish astronomer video a comet crashing into Jupiter was that in the last couple of years? Do you remember that? I, mean, I might be misremembering that myself. But I, th- I thought he was he was quite possibly yes because there are certain amateurs who have invested a lot of time and effort and money into their observatories and have very very decent capabilities. Uh, I know a few of them actually. Um, just don't specifically remember the details of that, but that absolutely wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, yeah, and amateurs again in the field of astronomy in the field of amateur radio, which is another of my hobbies. Believe it or not amateurs non-professionals have been making have been pioneers in some respects i'm not saying i'm a pioneer of aerial photography or anything but there there have been examples where you know ordinary citizens can make significant contributions and it's lovely it's really lovely see the thing about it is people forget this and i don't mind saying this because you say i'm not i'm not part of any organization i'm very independent irish heritage is ridiculously grossly underfunded it's terrible there's just tourism loads of money for tourism but heritage monuments very very little funding and heritage as a result is badly neglected and it needs that local investment the local interest it's the local heritage groups uh, that are doing a lot of the work Uh, I'm not I'm not having a go at the Department of Heritage or National Monuments or OPW, they're doing the best that they can in a grossly underfunded situation. Yes. But you, we spoke before you switched on the microphones. You mentioned um, uh, Loch Crew. You've mentioned it to me a couple of times lately that you've been up there. Like Loch, the Loch Crew monuments are suffering from gross deterioration. Some of the megalithic art is exposed to the elements. Guarantee is locked to the public now because there's some sort of subsidence happening there, and there's no money to address it. That's like I can say that. Like if you had a minister on here, they would probably try and deny that, but I can say that yes. because if the money was there, they would be addressing it. That's I suppose an, an added benefit of having kind of independent um, people who don't do this professionally. They can speak up. They're not afraid of you know losing their job or. Not even losing their job, but just people are afraid of putting their head above the parapet. But you don't have those kind of concerns, so you can basically. 
and, and, and I wrote a blog post lately about vandalism to ancient sites, which unfortunately is, is, is an issue. And one of the things I said in that blog post was that we have a crazy situation where we have heritage and environment in the same department. The same department that is responsible for a lot of large infrastructure projects is also the same department that looks after heritage. Like, talk about a conflict of interests. Yeah. You know, it's like, you you know from Celtic Tiger era Ireland that we just decided that um, archaeology was just this thing you did to find out about something before you destroyed it by building a motorway over it. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, yeah. I hate to be flippant about it, but that's that, that's a fa- that's the fact of the matter. Yeah. We decided that archaeologists were these people who told you, "Yeah, this is a fascinating site." Before you ploughed over it, yeah, we, and do- built we a document that. We've so never forgotten about yeah, and... exactly preservation by record is what they call it. Oh, they've lovely. actually got a term for it: preservation Preser- by record. We record it and then we destroy it. And and the word preservation is ridiculous. You know, it's like it's a nonsensical word. You're not preserving anything. You're preserving it as a memory, you know. But um, there would be, you know, I, I didn't realize, I didn't actually, it wasn't my intention to come here and to, I don't like stoking controversy. Actually, it's just something I try to stick away from generally. Yeah. Mythical Ireland is generally a non-religious and non-political organization. It's not really an organization. It's a one-man organization. Um, you know, I try not to get political and I try not to get religious, but by God, sometimes it's hard not to get political. Yeah, when well, you, look. when you see some of the stuff that happens, you know. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I would have to say that, um, I think we, we have paid a very big price, um, in terms of the stuff that we've lost, and that danger is ever present. Because a lot of monuments don't have any statutory protection. They're recorded, but they don't have sufficient statutory protection, um, which has resulted in a lot of cases around the country that some of them high profile cases where landowners went out and basically destroyed monuments because they were in the way of their activities. Um, But no harm because they've been preserved. In air quotes. <laughs> well, in, in some cases, there was no, there wasn't even any archaeology. They just went out and bulldozed them. You know, of course. Now, now of course, look, I'm not saying that's going to happen here locally. And um, I, I know actually, for instance, in the Boyne Valley, I happen to know a number of landowners in the area, and they are very, very uh, um, proud custodians of the heritage and the monuments. So uh, I, don't, I don't. That's not a concern. But, you know, there's another attitude that we have so many monuments that bash or look, you know. What's another monument kind of thing? Yeah. And, like, if you allow that attitude to prevail, you'll eventually get to a generation that'll say, jeez, you know, it's not that long since we had, you know, a thousand of these monuments and, and now we've only got 300. And eventually you'll read the stage where there's only a dozen left of a particular type of monument. Uh, you know, you can be blasé about it. The other side of it is that you have to be realistic too, which is we have to farm the land. You know, you're in the business of, you know, producing food. I can say if you say I haven't moved monument in order to, to <laughs> let my business thrive, thankfully. But we, we have to, you know, the land, you know, we have to obviously 
plough the land, we have to grow crops, we have to feed our cattle and grow food. Of course we have, you know, so you have that as well. We also have to live somewhere and build homes. Yeah, I understand that. But there are just some things that you you cannot replace. No, without a doubt. You know? and it's, it's funny because it came up in a recent conversation um, I had with somebody on the podcast, I think. It was in relation to uh, our our wildlife. And I made the point that it's great for me. I live if, live in Kaberi, real fertile land, and I'd be out watching the buzzards, and we have foxes and badgers and rabbits, and it's all it's 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 great. It's fantastic. But fifty years ago, we would have had corn crakes, maybe corn crakes. We would have had half Cardews. a dozen. Exactly, we'd have had. I can't even name the things mm. that we don't have, obviously. Mm. And I'm afraid that my son's going to grow up, and he's going to say, "Isn't it great that we have rabbits and foxes?" No mention of the buzzards and the badgers. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. his co- kids will grow up going, Jesus, mm-hmm. isn't it great that we have rabbits and rats yeah. <laughs> and, and cockroaches? <laughs> I, well, I fully expect at that stage that the rats will have taken over the world. <laughs> they have because the ready. humans will probably have destroyed it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it's, it's the same thing. Like you, you, you grow up with this understanding that what you have is there and it's great. But then with every successive generation, it just gets a little bit lower and lower and lower until mm-hmm. you realise that... You know, you don't have a heritage or you don't have a ecosystem. Yeah, it's the same. I think we're we're treating wildlife the way the same way we're treating monuments to an extent, you know. It's like everything ah, we've just kind of we're in a scenario now where so many people are in offices and you know, not attached to nature that the only nature they ever see is on screens, you know. Yeah. They don't very much rea- so. they don't realise that they're actually losing wildlife and nature too you know what we call progress but of course not progress at all we're not progressing if we're if we're destroying the uh, the wildlife and and uh, the uh, um biodiversity of the earth um and that's another big crisis that we're facing it jeez i didn't realize we we're going to be so hot and heavy <laughs> so soon where, where's the where where's the humor here jeez we're getting jeez this is terrible thursday morning and, and uh, we're getting well i'm dragging the conversation down i think well look I, I, I can pull it back a little because i know that because a lot of people have aren't working in dublin say because of the the, the pandemic there a lot of people are working from home and a lot of people are starting to notice the whatever it is the hedgehog that's on the lawn mm. in the early hours or or yeah. do you know that kind of way that they are people are starting to hear the birds and they're not they're not commuting as much to their home that little bit more and i think people are there's been a huge increase i believe in uh, seed sales in the likes of woodies and choice and different places so people seem there's a there's a trend there for people growing their own veg and different things people are starting to get a little bit more clued into it because i think yeah. they're, not, they're just not as they're not as much in the rat race as they were yeah the rat race just takes all of your time uh, it really does and and it 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 just removes your 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 personal investment in these things because you have to get from A to B to do your job and from B back to A again in the evening. And by the time you've done all that, you've missed out on all of the wonderful things that are happening out there. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, I think this pandemic has done us some favours. It's a rather controversial area of discussion, I suppose. But, you know, and like that, one of the things it has done is it has reduced traffic and air pollution has reduced vastly reduced the number of planes flying in the sky look we could argue the, the good and the bad of that I'm, I'm just highlighting that there are silver linings um and and like that i know personally as a result of the lockdown and the pandemic i have been able to spend more time out and about 
and I have found that to be very valuable because yeah like that it just you just suddenly realize that actually lads and lassies there's an awful lot more to life than being in a car and being in an office and zipping up and down the road all day pretending that in some way this matters yeah very much so you know because it ma- you think it matters to you and it matters to your financial circumstances and keeping a roof over your head but i think it's times like this that you realize or you should realize the things that actually really matter and it's a funny thing that we've ended up talking about wildlife and monuments because in my view we've treated uh, both the same way uh, it's like heritage is something to be encountered in a virtual sphere yeah you very know? much so and, and wildlife is the same we see all these lovely photographs and videos online and we click like and we share and all the rest yeah. what effort have we made in our own lives to interact with that nature and to preserve it or protect it in some way you know no, yeah. we, we the is, we, we've been dreadfully remiss actually the closest we've come to it is we go to zoos to see animals yeah. and we go to heritage sites to see you know the plaques that they've erected instead of actually being part of our own history and our own culture and our own heritage yeah yeah um what's the answer <laughs> well, I think you know that's the big question, isn't it? Where, where do we go from here? Well, I think you you made a massive um, stride in in what you do generally. I think just with your your mythical Ireland page, you have the Facebook page, the Instagram, the YouTube. You're you know you're, you're out there, you're doing it, and you're just you're, you're living your own life. It, you know, you're not doing it to uh, appease anyone or because there's a need to do it. You're doing it because you want to do it. And I think if more people took a leaf out of your book. Or your several books available at good bookshops on mythicalisland.com. <laughs> <laughs> plug, plug number three. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I think this what people need is is examples of what to do as opposed to yeah. more so than examples of what we shouldn't do. I met a guy, I was at Sly, I was in Sligo last week. I did a sort of an odyssey, a, a megalithic adventure last Thursday. I went to try and see as much uh, megalithic uh, archaeology as I could in one day. And when I was at Carrow Moor, I, I I was being given the tour there by a very good friend of mine, Martin Byrne, who's who I've known for years, and he's brilliant. He's he's a little bit. I just see him as my equivalent on the west coast. You know, he's just doing what I do and really loving it. But we met a, a couple there from the north, uh, from Northern Ireland, and eventually we got talking to them. And the gentleman in question was very active in community heritage in the north. And he wasn't very impressed with the authorities and what the authorities were doing. And so when he got talking to Martin and Martin and I, he actually said, not that we put the words into his mouth, but he said, I'm glad to hear you two are sort of mavericks. <laughs> and I was like, I wouldn't consider myself a maverick. I would certainly consider myself very independent. But he, he, he then said, how would you see your role? And I actually took a step back from it. I was like, actually, it's a funny thing that I'm not, I don't know if I've ever been asked that. What do you see as your role personally or as Mythical Ireland's role? And when I thought about it for a minute, I said, actually, my role is probably I'm a popularizer of archaeology and mythology and ancient history. I, I see my role as popularizing it. So what I do is I read a lot of the 
books and the archaeological texts and a lot of the myths and i i i bring that to the public i think in a way that they can understand yeah i try to translate the the more difficult concepts into layman's terms um you see there's an awful lot of very very good information buried in academic texts no i would probably believe that it, the yeah. general public yeah. will never see the de- the light they'll never they'll never see the light of day for most people um and it's the same with the myths like I- ireland has a vast corpus or body of myth- mythology and folklore excuse me a huge amount of it we we in the christian brothers school in drahada we were taught uh, classical studies and we were taught that in a way you know the whole light of the world emerged from the from the classical world the greeks and the romans gave us civilization and gave us everything we have and i've realized over the past 20 years that no in fact <laughs> we had a- at least all of that if not more in within the borders of our own island and and we just uh, had neglected that so the role of popularizing it uh, you're 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 definitely trying to uh you're trying to popular popularize it in a way that brings awareness to it in a in a constructive way you're trying to make people aware of the deeper aspect not just the there's a whole load of signposted monuments in ireland that you can go to i mean brunabonia and the hill of tara for example in our own area yeah that's great but what about that ring fort on farmer joe's land that his family have some knowledge of because the grandfather used to say oh yeah there's a fort there and maybe he even remembered the name of it there was a particular name on that field or on the fort and they had forgotten all about it and maybe it gotten ploughed away over the generations and suddenly it's visible in an aerial photograph you know what you're forgetting about is that at one time maybe a thousand years ago maybe 1500 years ago a family lived there and kept cattle there and and eked out an existence in a much different time in the world uh, at a time when there were much different challenges than what we have today and and it's trying to reimagine that and then the stories of that era you know and the change from you know when christianity came in and how much life changed during that time it's to try and spark the imagination to get people thinking along those lines with drone henge what i've tried to do in the book is to try to build a picture as to what the hell did this thing look like and what was it likely to have been used for can we imagine scenarios and i've painted scenarios in the picture in in, sorry in the book i've painted a picture of what i think might have gone on there based on what the archaeologists have told me and it's just trying to light that spark in people to get them interested enough that we can you know retain preserve promote but there's it is a double-edged sword because in promoting sites you bring traffic to them and that's not necessarily a good thing and we see that at lock crew lock crew is suffering from the fact that people are walking all over these ancient cairns and you know gradually they're eroding and being damaged and all the rest so it's striking the balance between promoting and preserving yeah it's it's funny you say that because we we mentioned previously before the, the recording started I had texted you a week or so ago about the possibility of you coming back on again. And uh, you texted me back to say that you were up that mountain that you mentioned a few minutes ago in Sligo. And you were examining, what, what was the name of the cairn again? 
was I up? Was I up at? The, oh, I was. I was up on Knocknaray, Queen Knock- Queen Maeve's cairn. Yes, where Ke- Ke- where you said Queen Maeve uh, is said to have been buried. And I looked it up then on Wikipedia, and I saw that it was the largest cairn outside of the Boyne Valley. Yeah, and that it was um, supposed. It's supposed to have or supposed to hold the remains of Maeve from Irish mythology. And the alarming thing for me was that it was that it was and is unexcavated. And when I said to you that it, I said to you before the recording started, it's mad the way that it's, it hasn't been unexcavated or hasn't been excavated. Why hasn't it? And you raised a very good point insofar as that we shouldn't be going around opening up all of these things. And the example I think you gave was, or one of them was, the what was taken out of Newgrange that was there for nearly five thousand years is now in a storage cabinet in swords somewhere yeah and where will it be in another five thousand years mm-hmm. i wouldn't think it'll be in that same storage cabinet so there's a there's an element of damage that has to be done to these places to excavate them in the first place but is there a is there a halfway point between maybe not fully excavating them maybe examining them especially now with lighter and different technologies is there a halfway point between fully excavating them and oh, there completely definitely ignoring is. them? Yeah, there definitely is. It's actually a really very, that's a very good question. Uh, there definitely is. Um, so uh, in answer to, I suppose I'll deal with that if I can in two in two sections. The first dealing with archaeology and the second dealing with um, non-invasive techniques. The archaeology to this point, I mean... In the past 50 years or 60 years, we've been doing, well, actually in the past century, we've been doing a lot of excavation. I wonder, um, can we can we truthfully, honestly say that modern archaeological excavation isn't just a new form of treasure hunting and grave robbing? Yeah, well, I suppose you know? back in the day you were looking for something that could be melted down and sold. And yeah. now yeah. it's you were, put on display and you charge people to come and see it. They're not know, the exact same. Well, I just wonder about... The fact that we now, in the past couple of centuries, especially, that we have suddenly deemed it okay to 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 dig o- to dig open what is basically a gravesite, passage tombs, and megalithic monuments are generally burial places, uh, and to clear them out and to sterilize them of all their uh, buried remains, the bones and the cremated bones and the fragments that we find and to cart them off and put them in boxes and keep them in storage. As I said, most of them are in storage in a warehouse and swords in County Dublin. Um, are we sure? Are we full sure that we've moved on from being grave robbers and treasure hunters? Yeah. Because I'm not good. so sure that we have. Yeah. Uh, and I know lots of archaeologists and I know that, um, uh, <laughs> that yeah, uh, probably, probably it'll probably work them up a little bit to hear this, but you know, we can't we can't say that we're sure. What is it that has possessed us in recent history to want to dig up graves that previously we were like, no, that's taboo. You don't dig up graves. You leave them. You you have respect for prehistoric burial places that have been there for centuries and millennia. You don't touch them. You stand off from them. You don't walk on them. You don't allow your cattle to graze on them. And you certainly don't go in and dig them with trowels and shovels. Yeah, and put them into little sterilised boxes and you know, categorise them. We've taken, else. like, the, the fascinating study of the, the bones recently at Newgrange, and remind me, we have to get back to non-invasive. Um, the fascinating study recently of the DNA of the, the guy that we call NG10, which is the, the only uncremated remains that were found at Newgrange during O'Kelly's excavations, 
were these petrous temporal bones, which is apparently some of the hardest and densest bone in the human body, part of the skull, I think, behind the ears. They were able to extract a DNA sample and, and sequence his genome. And it turns out his parents were first degree um, relatives. In other words, his parents were either brother and sister or father and daughter, father, daughter, or, mother, wow. mother, son, which which I think might possibly tell us a lot about the structure of society at that time. Um, but it's even the fact that, you know, those bones were in the earth in the chamber of Newgrange until the 1960s. And they're now not there anymore. Yes. I think tells us quite a lot about our own. I mean, you could go down a, a, a Carl Jung sized rabbit hole. Go for it. You could. <laughs> and, and you could say uh, perhaps the digging that we do uh, into a- ancient uh, grave sites is an avoidance technique. We're avoiding digging into the archaeology of our own uh, psyche and our own unconscious. And we're uh, avoiding all of the questions about ourselves, uh, which is the most urgent journey that Jung believed we needed to go on in this modern era, was, you know, the journey into the self and to examine our own deepest shadows. I mean, the, the dark parts, of course, especially that we seem to want to avoid and project onto everyone else. So that's that's the whole... I, I mean, I haven't written about this yet, actually, in any of my books. I like the way you said yet. But it's something I definitely want to write about. It's the psychology of... what? what, what why, why are we so fascinated all of a sudden? I mean, all of a sudden, I mean in the past... Certainly in the past century. Why are we so interested now in clearing out grave sites? Like we wouldn't go into a cemetery with a shovel and dig up a body. It's it's funny because when you, when you start, well we, we we do for forensic purposes yes. in certain criminal cases of course, but we would consider it an absolute act of desecration. Yes, to go into a modern cemetery and dig up bones that were that were buried in the past half century. We we, we, we would we, that would be a national scandal, wouldn't it? Oh, without a doubt. And it's but funny. it's perfectly okay to dig up a medieval grave or a bronze age grave or a neolithic grave now as you said that's only because they've all been left alone far enough in the past that we we don't consider them closely related to us so it's okay yeah you know it's funny because when you first went down this line of of kind of comparing not even you're not even comparing it's well known that newgrange was a was a passage and it was a burial site um but when you started going down that, that, that kind of line, I was thinking, ah, but if the, if the Neolithic people who built it, if their descendants were still around, they wouldn't, they, they'd kick up a fuss and wouldn't let you. But I mean, that's me and you, isn't it? And most people listening, we are, like, are they, but you, but you see where I'm coming from? Like, you can see in, in America, the Native Americans will kick up a fuss if anybody went near, let's say, now, obviously wasn't the case back in the day, but now they wouldn't allow, you couldn't be seen to disturb an ancient Indian burial site now. But that's only really because there's still Native Americans Unless you're building there. an oil pipeline across well, yeah, it, then it's perfectly okay. Yeah, well, you know, I mean... In the name of progress. We're seeing the same 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 theme play out in different parts of the world. Um, but we're not actually related to the people of the Neolithic. That's a whole different discussion. Ooh. Most of the modern Irish population is descended from the Beaker Bronze Age culture. And what happened Which to came the... immediately after the megalithic building, Neolithic... Uh, culture it's apparently dna they're diverse 
they're diverse cultures. The the people of the Neolithic were dark skinned and blue eyed, which is a very unusual combination. Uh, they emanated originally from Anatolia or the area that we would know as Anatolia in modern day Turkey and gradually migrated across the continent of Europe. Um, but the Bronze Age culture is a different culture originally are, 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 are originating, originally originating. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> come on, Anthony. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sub-editing my own copy as I'm writing it here. Um, uh, originating in Iberia and spreading out from Central Europe. It's a different culture with a different genetic makeup. And apparently uh, in the past uh, decade, we've modern science has overthrown some of the things that we we held on to as fact until dna proved otherwise and that what one of those was that modern irish people are actually descended from the people who were here before the neolithic the mesolithic the hunter gatherers the, the middle stone age as we'd call it they're the people who arrived after the ice age around we see the first evidence of human activity at mount sandel in uh, outside Coleraine on the very northern tip of the island around 7000 bc but we're not descended from them at all. And we have actually uh, no right to call the builders of Newgrange our ancestors. <laughs> and is there anyone alive today that has that right? The funny thing is um, there's there's been a long-running question about, well, what happened? We still have to get back to non-invasive archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a... There's a very interesting question about what happened between the Neolithic and the Bronze Age. What happened? Because we know, certainly from studies of, of the British DNA, of course the data set is, is, is growing all the time. Because the more genomes we um, de- decode or sequence, um, the, the, the bigger the data set that we have. In Britain, 90% of the Neolithic DNA was wiped out something very substantial happened and I've discussed it. I'm not an expert, so I've only discussed it in very sort of broad uh, terms. You know, uh, it seems that there wasn't necessarily a catastrophe, as it were, but it's more likely that this new people arrived in the Bronze Age, that they may have killed some of the males and mated with the females there might have been they might have brought diseases with them that the natives the neolithic people weren't able to handle a little bit like europeans brought new diseases to america yeah they had no immunity the, basically the, the natives didn't have immunity to um and there might have been some conflict uh, and as well as that i think it's almost on on it's i don't think it's in question at this stage but i couldn't refer you exactly to the sources on it that the climate deteriorated towards the end of the neolithic as well so there were extra challenges there if you were farming and trying to grow your food you know that you've got all sorts of problems you've you've perhaps got you know environmental um you've got climate and weather events working against you you've got new arrivals coming in threatening your way of life and perhaps bringing disease with them so i think there might have been i'm just describing this now in terms some of the archaeologists will 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 perhaps have more information to pad this out or to dispute it but a perfect storm of things happening at that time that allowed this new culture to take root and we're descended from this new culture that arrived around we're talking around 2500 bc so around that 
four and a half thousand year ago horizon, which is one of the reasons I'm so interested in the late Neolithic phase at Brunabonia, because it's now apparent to us that that phase was much bigger than we thought it was. This huge monument complex there in the late Neolithic. So far from there being a deterioration, it seems just in that period when we were reaching the end of the Neolithic and, and the arrival of the Bronze Age, we see this vast complex. So that doesn't speak to us of population collapse. Yeah, the, the, on, on the contrary, it's the, a peak of civilization almost. Almost, yeah. You know that they had built these giant stone monuments and now they were building giant earthen and timber monuments. Um, and, 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 and clearly, quite clearly, there are huge numbers of people involved in the construction of those because it's not the sort of thing that... 12 lads do of a Saturday afternoon yeah yeah they mean high you know <laughs> this is the sort of thing that requires a huge organization of labor from probably a good distance away um so I'm I'm, I'm that's something I'm interested in and, and perhaps I need to I think it's not perhaps I, de- I definitely do need to do more research but the DNA has been fascinating anyway so we sidelined a little bit there from the discussion about grave robbing yes and treasure hunting how can we be sure that the archaeologists of today aren't just uh, a sort of a qualified, fancy, dressed-up uh, version of the Victorian uh, grave robbers of the past and treasure hunters. And my answer to that is I, I don't think we can be sure at all. We have this absolute fascination with the humans of the past. I don't know if we've convinced ourselves what questions we're trying to answer. Yeah, you're We're far more comfortable looking at people of the past than we are looking at people of the present is what uh, oh, I would, absolutely. is how I would put it it's a far more comfortable thing for us to look at people in the past and point out their deficiencies and the and the challenges that they had and the things that they did and the problems that they encountered than it is for us to address the problems that we have right now which are as you know very serious you know um so just to quickly cover the non-invasive yeah, you asked about Queen Maeve's cairn and, oh, it's unexcavated and, you know, are there let's, other let's, ways? Let's we get can, in there. <laughs> well, there are other ways. Actually, at Mill Mount in Drogheda, there was a uh, a programme of non-invasive archaeology called MARS, Mill Mount Archaeological Remote Sensing. And well, it was MARS for short uh, in the past decade that was looking to see, see, Mill Mount is a martello you'll you'll know it everybody even if you've only ever been to Drogheda once you'll know it it's this uh martello tower sitting on a big mound overlooking the town yeah another one is is it a walled tower it's yeah. like it's it's, yeah. it's a, so the tower is a martello tower built by the british in the early 19th century 1808 richmond fort uh the british army had been based at that complex before that it was a garrison town but it was built on top of a mound that was said by the historians to have been built by the Normans, a Norman castle moat, a moat and bailey, right, in perhaps the late 12th century, the early 13th century. But the folklore has always said, no, that's that's the burial mound of Amrigan, the Milesians who came in uh, to take Ireland from the Tua de Danon, right? Um, and the folklore would say that it's part of the Brunabonia complex. The annals say that the cave of the wife of the Gubon at Drogheda was raided by the Vikings along with the mounds of Newgrange Nouth and Douth in the 9th century. So you have all this stuff that suggests Millmount is older than the Normans, who are uh, said to have been the ones who built it. 
what the Normans usually did actually was they found a mound pre-existing they said right lads build a castle on top of that fortify that sure if you were coming in you know as a new people trying to establish yourselves and trying, trying to establish your authority would you would you employ labour to build yourself a big mound or would you just say there's a mound there we'll just reinforce that one of course you'd reinforce what's there already you know well you're, you're taking it from them as well as building your own of course yeah well yeah, that's, works, a, works that's, on, a, that's a big on part the of it, yeah. But the Mars project used non-invasive, in other words, you're not digging. Yes. All sorts of fancy tomography and uh, uh, there was some sort of seismic uh, measuring equipment that they uh, were able to uh, create sound waves through the monument and to measure them at various points around the perimeter to try and determine whether there were cavities or hard structures, rock or whatever, in the interior of the monument. Now, the the project didn't reach any firm conclusions, but the very best guess that they can make based on the data is that there's definitely another mound underneath the mound that we see about halfway down or a little bit further there's 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 a harder mound that's that's got more 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 gravel in it than soil. And that right at the centre of that, there's, there's what looks like rock. And there's no cavity. So, Unless it, there was a cavity and it had been filled. Well, what were, one of the possibilities that has been discussed out of this is that you might be, you might, and I have to say, we're only just trying to uh, interpret data. What, what there might be is a collapsed passage tomb. What okay. there might be. Yes. But at the very least, it seems that the project would indicate that, yeah, the likelihood is that there's a pre-Norman mound beneath the mound that we see today, the fortified mound upon which the original castle moat of Drogheda was built Okay, in the 12th or 13th century. Uh, and the best guess would be that, yeah, that might be a Bronze Age barrow, but there's still the possibility that it might be a passage tomb. Right. I'm trying to reconcile what you're saying with my own very limited knowledge of construction. So I know when you, if you want to build a house in a field, the very first thing that you, as I understand it, must do is scrape back all the topsoil till you hit bedrock and then you can put your foundations on the bedrock and build up from there. But with the mound, what you're saying that in like there's quite a big castle-like structure on the very top of this mound, even to this day. Yes. So in order for that not to subside and fall over, which it obviously hasn't done, I would have thought it would have had to have been built on bedrock. But that's obviously not the case. So rocks were put on the bedrock and then there was a, that was your original mound. And then there was another, was more rocks put on top of that. And then what we see now was built on top of what's on top of that. that makes sense. (laughs) I think the higher part of the mound is more earth. Okay. And I think the lower part is more gravel mixed in with the earth. There two there there is a distinct horizon apparently. Okay. There's a, a distinct horizon between the two. Um Brendan Matthews, who's the local historian there in Drogheda, has been the one who has sort of brought this information to the fore um and tried to sort of interpret for us in in a in a way that's understandable by the ordinary sort of layman layperson. Um it just it opens up possibilities. What it does not do, and this is the point about remote 
techniques. The technology, of course, and the methods are improving and evolving all the time. And of course, DNA is part of the arsenal of the modern archaeologists, as in a lot of cases, the drones. The aerial archaeology is quite an important part. In the case of Queen Maeve's cairn, um, it seems to be built of, it's a cairn, so it's built of loose stones. It's diff- more difficult to get uh, data from that type of structure than it is from an earthen mount. Yes. For obvious reasons. Yes. It's, it's not quite solid, but it's effectively solid. There is nothing that will substitute an archaeological dig. There's nothing will be better than that at the moment. There may come a time when we're able to uh, send in tiny robots, you know, like nanorobots. Oh, absolutely. In, yeah. Into the soil and into the stones. Of Especially monuments. into a cairn where there would yeah. be the nooks and crannies and for to move. to image and to retrieve samples. Um, we can, in certain cases, do what's called coring, which is, you know, like ice coring, where you, you put a core down, right down into the ground, and you bring it out, and you, you examine all the layers and what's in them and all the rest. Um, but at this moment of time, there's nothing. There's no substitute for an archaeological dig. Uh, so one of the things that I would be proposing in relation to, not so much Maeve's Cairn. Maeve's Cairn's a difficult one, because, you know, if if you the problem with excavating a cairn is if you remove stones, other stones will slip and fall. Yes. You know, you're, it's very difficult to do a part excavation, I would imagine. Maybe some archaeologists listening to me are saying, that's a lot of rubbish, Anthony. We can, and we would figure out how to do it. Um, but in the case of Dronehenge, for instance, uh, that's a field that's part of a farm. It's an active farm. It's being used for crops. So it's it's people have been saying, you know, since the discovery, why don't you, why don't why hasn't it been excavated? Like, well, there's a lot of reasons why it hasn't been excavated. But principal among them is it's private farmland. You yes. Know? What What do you want? You just barge in onto someone's farm and say we're excavating. You know, um, but I think in the future what you're going to see is targeted excavation, small trenches and small targeted pits. We just excavate small a couple of very small parts of it. Yes, key locations give you enough information to get datable material or whatever. And we're seeing that, of course. We saw that at Newgrange Farm at the time of the, the discovery in a separate field at Newgrange Farm. Uh, Matthew and Geraldine Stout were excavating a single trench excavation on a feature that had shown up in in, in uh, geophysics in 2015 that could have been anything between from a, a, a Victorian landscape garden feature to a medieval barn to a Neolithic cursus. And actually the dates that came back from the dig showed that it was a late Neolithic structure. Um, but a single trench. So not a, a whole scale excavation. So you're not... See, excavation, people forget, is it's a destructive process. You're digging down and you're destroying basically the stratigraphy. And you can never put... When you dig something out, you can't put it back the way you found it. Not really. Yeah, you can, you know, you can make a best effort. But exactly. Um, so without that whole scale excavation slash destruction of um, uh, the stratigraphy, what you can do is targeted excavation. And I think that's, in the future, what you're going to see is a mixture of both. You're going to see very targeted, uh, small scale excavations to retrieve datable material and to excavate certain features. I mean, Dronehenge, I mean, there's this box-like rectangular feature attached to the outer perimeter of the circle. Yes, a porch almost. 
you know, a porch is what actually is one of the terms I use for it. Steve Davis thinks it might have been a ticket office. So that entry might, fee, yeah, that you might have been going in. Like, think of Gladiator, think of the Coliseum, think of you know uh, arenas where you're watching some sort of sporting activity, some sort drama. of ritual yeah. sacrifice activity, yeah. some sort of giant play, some sort of horse races. I mean, these things are. Pardon me, some of them are mentioned in the mythology, the Anoch sites, the assembly sites, you know, where festivities were held to mark the beginning of the harvest, etc. You know, where you had maybe fighting and horse racing and, you know, I don't know, I'm just speculating, but I loved that idea that this is the ticket office. This is the this is the entry. This is, you know, you, you come in this way. You don't just walk in and watch the action that it's a controlled environment. You know, it's like, this is a big deal, guys. We're putting on this big show and you have to, I don't know how you would have paid in the Neolithic. <laughs> you might, have, actually, I'm inclined to think that the best form of payment in the Neolithic was, um, if not some form of stone tool, um, food. Of course, yeah. You know, people needed to eat, didn't they? You know? Yeah, without, without a doubt. Um, but I'd love to see uh, a part excavation of Dronehenge, uh, some small portion of the porch being uh, investigated and then some of the double ditch features and the posts and then at the opposite side there's like a, an additional annex on the southeastern side of it and perhaps a little trench across that just get enough information about it to get an age of it and you know to to to, to give us something of a picture of at the moment we're guessing of course it yeah. may not even be late neolithic when did these types of hinges stop being used was it immediately when these new peoples arrived to ireland that it just stopped dead in the water then or yeah you see the the bronze age culture what they tended to do was they tended first of all that you could find a lot of burials at the pre-existing neolithic sites but they tended to dig into them and bury them in urns upturned urns sometimes you know you get kissed burials you get sort of open burials almost like a bit of a graveyard you get an awful lot of what we call barrows which are like low earthen mounds where where they get buried in and and they get buried in maybe a an enclosed stone lined grave and then a mound built over them uh the hinges yeah they kind of like the bronze age introduces a, just a whole new way of being and they don't see the thing about the bronze age is it's just like they arrive and they just seem to decide, nah, we're not building big stuff like that anymore, you know? Yeah. So you don't see the monumental scale. You don't see this large-scale structure. You don't see it either in terms of the tombs or in the ceremonial architecture. So the hinges, yeah, pretty much die out. You later see in the Iron Age uh, uh, large enclosures uh, on hilltops. kind of call those hill forts. There's a lot of examples of them in Britain fortified hill forts um so in terms of that scale you don't see in the bronze age you don't see giant hinges you don't you just i wonder is that a, a sign of excuse me i wonder is that a sign of um an increased individualism nearly that if people are out for themselves a bit more there isn't that there isn't as much collectivism because as you alluded to earlier the building of Newgrange and such and even the henge 
it required a mass of people to cooperate and to pull together and I wonder did the new peoples were they more individualistic like no 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 I have my field over here with my cattle and I'm doing my own thing you guys go and do your own thing I don't know well that's perhaps the case and um I've made the observation in my book about Newgrange I made the observation that it's in the Bronze Age that you begin to see metal weaponry Okay. Now, not to say that weaponry didn't exist in the Stone Age, and apparently there are examples in Britain of of, of fairly um, uh, fairly gruesome deaths through violent means. But you, you, two things that happen with the introduction of metallurgy are jewellery, okay, metal jewellery, yeah, yeah, gold, etc., and 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 metal weaponry. And I and think would that, that suggests a hierarchy. Not I'm not sure. Had. I'm not sure, but I, what it suggests to me is that we're 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 valuing certain things, and we're valuing them enough to kill people for them. Yes, just on a, in a bro- very broad sense. Of course, yeah, that's what yeah. it would suggest to me. The problem with the Neolithic monumental architecture of the Brunabonia, for instance, the problem with interpreting it is, and again, this is something I've written about uh, in my Mythical Ireland book and in my Dronehenge book. Is you have to you always have to ask the question. Yeah, clearly there are a lot of people involved in building the late Neolithic monumental landscape of Brunabonia. Are they uh, cooperating willfully, or are they being coerced? Yes, are they or, slaves? Or forced? Yeah, and you have to ask that question. NG Ten and the DNA this summer has opened up that debate even more, because now we see the possibility of. Uh, you know, a dynastic ruling family that uh, is inbreeding basically to to keep it in the family, as it were. Yeah, and the, the only the only cases apparently where you see that historically are where you have ruling dynasties, yes, royal where you have this very very significantly tiered societal structure where you have royalty at the top and slaves at the bottom. Um, so the Dinshanicus myth about Douth which is quoted in the paper about the DNA is interesting because it mentions not only does it mention um, incest but it also mentions that the King Bressel brought all the men of Ireland to Douth to build him a tower from which he could pass to heaven Uh, now it's compared to the Tower of Nimrod which is like a biblical incursion by the monastic scribes who wrote this stuff down in the Middle Ages but I think that's interesting because it suggests that this megalomaniac was so full of himself that he was like, yeah, I'm going to bring all the men in the country here to build me something for me that I can access heaven. Other world mounds, the she perhaps were seen as access points to, you know, the afterlife or whatever. But I just think it's interesting. It still doesn't answer the question for me as to whether he brought them against their will or whether he brought them by gently coercing them to become involved in I mean, clearly, you need large-scale cooperation for that sort of thing, don't you? Oh, without a doubt. Regardless of whether you're cracking the whip with them or whether you're, say, trying to... It may be more egalitarian. You you may find that in the Neolithic, what was happening was they were saying, lads, we've got this big project on. We need bodies to help build it. We're going to pay you with food. Yeah, without a doubt. Maybe because the Douth legend mentions that this all happened at the time when there was a, a, a disease, a moraine, a famine among the cattle of Ireland that 
perhaps something like foot and mouth disease or red water or something. And there was only one bull and seven cows left in Ireland. So it doesn't specifically say it, of course. But my one of my theories about that legend is that it suggests that a large amount of man force, man manpower, labor was being brought to one place to build a monument. But because it was a time of food deprivation, perhaps that was the the key motivator was that the king was paying people with food. He was feeding them to become involved in these projects. We see the same thing, by the way, uh, in the famine era uh, and, and afterwards when wealthy landlords built had follies built on their lands and follies are like, as they suggest, it's a folly that doesn't serve any particular purpose towers and little castles and stuff that they built on their land as a means of just employing the local labor and, and giving them a little bit of money for food and to stop them from revolting possibly, possibly that too, too yeah. you know yeah um so there are all sorts of questions uh, and it's wonderful i mean it re- it's fascinating there are so many questions and of course one question leads to several more questions um in terms of bringing it all back to your question uh, initially about Queen Maeve's cairn, um, I don't think you'll ever see a large-scale excavation of that in the way we've seen that, say, Nouth, for instance, where Nouth was basically stripped all the way back to the ground and put back together. Okay. Right? I don't think you're going to see that again. But I think in the future what you'll see is small-scale excavation combined with a battery of other techniques yes and as the science improves of course those techniques will improve and 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 i've said it just off the cuff there a while back i said it without even thinking about nanorobots and maybe maybe there is a line of inquiry that archaeologists in the future will employ uh, very tiny robots to burrow down into a uh, an archaeological monument to take images as they're going and to retrieve samples from the interior and bring them back again and and there you've a non-destructive process but you're actually retrieving uh, you know material that you can date or whatever you yeah know. valuable information even you just just as you were speaking there came to mind you're probably familiar with a dye that can be put into a human's blood and then you go into x-ray and then yeah. so the, the, the same kind of principle let's say you pour, I don't know, 20,000 gallons of a particular, of, of water that has something in it, maybe it's radioactive or something, let it seep down and see what image that pulls back. So there's any amount of different things that could possibly be done. Yeah, and I mean, we're, we've just in, as I said, in in the past decade, actually in the past seven years, um, the DNA has just completely revolutionised. It's completely overthrown some aspects of archaeology. I mean, we're now not even sure if there was what we call a Celtic invasion, you know, the Celts and the Iron Age. Just beginning to suggest now that the language, the Irish language as we know it, evolved. We were always told it was brought by the Celts, but apparently now they're saying, no, it's actually more likely because we don't see evidence in the DNA for a big incursion in the Iron Age. It's more likely that the language began to bed down in the Bronze Age, you know, whatever it emerged from we're told proto-indo-european was the was the language that would have been used you know in prehistory before before irish i'm sure none of us can know because we only see writing with the arrival of christianity was the first time you see writing you know om and then the manuscripts before that we've nothing apart from the symbols on the megalithic sites which are not a language as such Uh, they're quite an abstract form 
Have know. they ever been um, not, not, not transcribed, but have they interpreted? Like, interpreted, say, with, with any degree of accuracy that anyone can really stand over. Uh, no. Are we? Could, the, the short answer is no. Could we someday, do you think, find the equivalent of what was it called, the Rosetta Stone? Isn't that what? Translated a lot of the hieroglyphics. I don't believe we will either because I believe the megalithic art is not a language. So the hieroglyphs that turned out were, were, were a language. Okay. They were they were characters in an alphabet that formed words. Yes. The symbols on the megalithic. It's, it's, it's more abstract. That's not to say it's entirely abstract and entirely non-representational. There's a whole, whole discussion there. Martin Brennan, who's... who's a very controversial American artist uh, interpreted a lot of megalithic art in his book, uh, The Stones of Time, originally published as The Stars and the Stones. And a lot of people who follow Mythical Ireland and have read my books will be aware of Brennan. Brennan was controversial because he proposed that almost everything in megalithic art uh, had uh, an astronomical and a cosmological meaning and derivation. Um, And put forward what a lot of people consider to be very convincing uh, theories around that. And of course that marries in very nicely with the fact that Newgrange admits the sun on the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, and Douth does the same in the afternoon and guarantee at Loch Crew for the equinoxes. So it, t- it seems to tie up very nicely with certain aspects of the monuments. Uh, but the, uh, the mainstream uh, academic establishment are thoroughly unconvinced of his... Um, of his theories um the problem we have there is very straightforward we don't have any written manual from the time that says yeah my name is stony mcflint i'm 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 an artist here at newgrange <laughs> and i'm one of the lads now that's carving the stones or maybe it's a woman okay fair enough um and uh i'm going to tell you now that this symbol here the spiral i'm going to tell you the meaning of it there's nothing that says there's any meaning. And of course, it's another thing uh, in Jungian psychology. If you looked at the whole thing psychologically, one of the big questions that people ask at Bruno Bonia is what, what do the symbols mean? You know, it's like, why, why are you hung up on what they mean? Of course, I have been too in my work. It's not, it's not, I'm, you know, it's not, it's not like I haven't tried to interpret the meaning of symbols. But perhaps the meaning is entirely subjective. Perhaps it's entirely personal to the artist at the time. Perhaps it doesn't have a universal meaning. Perhaps it doesn't actually have uh, an empirical, describable meaning. Perhaps you're supposed to just meditate on these symbols. It has often been said by the guides at Newgrange that the art and the monument will reflect back at you what you bring to them. So your own prejudices and your own subjective approach to things will no doubt be reflected back at you. And of course, I came to the whole thing 21 years ago as an astronomer. So I see lots of astronomy on the stones of Brunabonia. Of course I do. I see suns and moons and stars, and I see spirals that represent solar movement, and I see circles that represent the movements of the stars. Of course I see all that. Does that mean I'm right? (laughs) What's that saying? Uh, To a hammer, everything looks like a nail. There you go. If we... The only way I think we are ever going to satisfactorily answer that is um, if if we get Doc and Marty McFly on the job <laughs> and we get the DeLorean to go back in time, you know. And even if we could, sure, we'd have to overcome the language barrier because we don't know what language they might have spoken. Um, you know, and, and to personally ask the artists of the time, 
what 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 what's the meaning of this and maybe we might find out that yeah yeah this a lot of it's to do with astronomy and the movements of the sun and the moon and the stars or maybe we'll find that no no i just i just uh, took a few mushrooms one day and i was tripping man and this is, <laughs> you know and this is this is this is what i saw and i just just decided to carve it into the stone you know who knows it's it's a very very subjective area doesn't make it any less interesting of course but what it means is that we can i don't think we're ever going to be able to f- fully answer that question is there reason to believe that whoever built Newgrange in the first place didn't do any of that uh, work with the stones and that that was done 500,000 years later no, at a different time? So. No, the biggest, the biggest uh, argument in favour of the carvings being done at the time the monument was built uh, is the fact that there is hidden art on surfaces of the stones uh, that... Uh, was carved before the stones were put into place and is now uh, hidden yes. from view. Yes. So I think that's kind of the biggest argument against the notion that the carvings were added later. That's not to say that all the carvings that you see at Newgrange and Nouth, for instance, and at Carantee at Lochrew, just to take examples, that's not to say that they were all done at the same time when the monument was built. Of course, stuff could have been added later. Same way as with the graffiti. You know, one of the things that Newgrange is famous for is its graffiti and Nouth as well. By the way, there's there's um, Viking graffiti in Nouth. Really? Mm. Wow. There's medieval graffiti in Nouth. In Newgrange, you'll see initials and names and dates from the the eighteen hundreds and the well, mostly the eighteen hundreds. Then the the uh, the monument. Uh, I think the first act pertaining to national monuments was enacted in the eighteen eighties. Might have been eighteen eighty eight actually. Uh, it was definitely in the eighteen eighties. But before that, people are coming and going into Newgrange. And, and as they're coming, they're getting nails and things. They're carving their initials into stones. Yes. Which is obviously something we don't like people doing now. But I, I'm just using that as an example. It's not necessarily the case that all of the megalithic art that you see at Brunabonia was there. In fact, we know that stones were reused. Stones from earlier monuments were reused in later monuments. How do we know that? Well, because they got megalithic art on them. One of the ceiling stones in the chamber of Nouth, the Corbel ceiling, has has carving carvings on it, and it has. It's believed that the stone was brought from somewhere else. See, there's a huge amount of satellite mounds at Nouth, and when they were excavated, most of the stones were missing in a lot of cases. And it's probably a case that they were just reused when they were expanding the bigger mounds. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, there's a medieval house or the foundations of at Nouth and one of the stones has a, a spiral and other megalithic art on it so it's obviously it was just robbed from one of the probably one of the smaller tombs it was like oh yeah there's a handy source of stone you know of course yeah no it's fascinating I've often thought that there might be somewhere beside Newgrange uh, essentially a dump where you'd find loads of all these ornate stones that have been beautifully marked but then you know the the rock that they were using to make the mark cracked it or chipped it or you know and it was half like, ah, this is no good so there's because there was there was there was something there was something real about what happened back then back then like what you were saying about them needing a stone oh there's a stone in this other one here like real just real everyday today stuff happened back then like it happens now do you know like i know yeah yeah absolutely i mean the practicality that's the word i was looking for because as sacred as everything is deemed to be we know that they reused stones from older monuments so things weren't obviously that sacred you know and unfortunately the the worst or the best example depending on your viewpoint 
of of reusing stuff is it occurs again in the last few centuries when you know starting in the 18th century uh contractors start to rob stone from monuments to use it to be to be broken up as road material for foundations of roads jesus right you know and gate posts and and walls i mean carrowmore is a brilliant example listahl which is a very controversially restored cairn with the gabion baskets it, it it looks hideous and i don't mind saying that it looks terrible right that cairn the stones from that were taken uh, in recent centuries and used to build field walls dry stone walling as field boundaries and in 1997 the decision was made we're going to take down all those field boundaries and we're going to put the stones back and build the cairn again right fascinating stuff at least in that case the stone is still there in the case of uh douth in particular some of the stone was taken by a contractor to be used as foundation material for the road that runs past so we don't know how much material was taken from douth probably a substantial amount uh, newgrange survived thanks to the intervention of edward lloyd who was a welsh antiquarian who arrived just after charles campbell the den the den tenant of the land had started to order his servants to remove stone from newgrange to build his 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 house and his buildings and, wow. and, and material for his his roads as it happens they just happened by circumstance by coincidence they started to remove stone from where the entrance is and shortly after they discovered the entrance curbstone with its lovely decoration and its spirals and the roof box and the entrance to the chamber and that was enough to stop them from basically well that wasn't anymore. enough to stop them i think lloyd was one of those who had come along in 1899 and and may have intervened and may have said listen don't take any more stone from this this is a very important you know structure but a huge amount of damage was done in the intervening centuries to a lot of monuments in Ireland. It seems that uh, landowners and tenants, particularly those, by the way, who are non-native, seem to have had very little care for monuments. Um, okay, so the a, a wealthy English landlord or whatever yeah. that was given land in Ireland, what shit does he give about but the, the natives, ancient Irish? The natives, of course... Were very superstitious about the monuments. They were the she. They were the realms of the fairies. They were the abodes of the spirits. They shouldn't be touched or damaged under pain of death, in some cases. Um, and and Martin Byrne was relaying to me at Carrowmore how, you know, when the grave robbing uh, antiquarians came along in the nineteenth century, that the locals wouldn't, they wouldn't dig into these mounds because they were like no. And once they found bones, they were like, no, <laughs> I'm, no out. I'm, I'm out. I'm out of here. Get someone else to do your dirty work for you, you know. Uh, but unfortunately, the superstition did not prevent a lot of monuments from being damaged and wholesale destroyed, you know. Um, so it's one of those things. It's like I, I, I just wonder sometimes whether we differentiate between the archaeologist who's qualified and we see them as professional and it, and it's okay for you to go in there and strip the bones out of a place but it's not okay for a victorian grave robber to do the same thing you know i just i just don't know it's just a curious thing in my mind as to why 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 we see it as okay to go in there you know and 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 take these burials out of monuments where we didn't see it okay in previous as okay in previous generations you know um we're very lucky in any case that we have as much as we have in terms of especially neolithic monumental 
architecture uh, and surviving standing monuments because we do know that a lot was damaged and destroyed so we're lucky that we have what we have but I always say that I'm not I don't really want to get into the argument about medieval archaeology and, and how prevalent it is what I want to do is to certainly focus the efforts on excuse me preserving our 5,000 year old monuments because once one of those disappears you have lost something extremely precious and thoroughly unique every one of them is unique in its own way because they're all different you know in some aspect of its design um yeah so they're worth definitely worth fighting for oh without a doubt and it's funny it's not until we started talking about this along the lines that we are that it made me think of the sanctity of these places yeah you know they like you know yourself when you've heard something a thousand times it loses its meaning so i would have heard the term for, in relation to Newgrange say it was a passage tomb it was a burial site it was blah but these things you just rhyme them off and you don't you don't hear the this is where they buried their dead do, do you know that kind of way there's something lost when you give it a when you kind of give it a name yeah and, and well yeah a label yeah right it's, it's a euphemism yeah, everything's really, labelled I mean I mean the, 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 the terrible thing about the antiquarians who, who mapped the sites is that they gave them letters you know Cairn T, Mound A, Standing Stone C, like it dreadfully depersonalizes them and massively and it st- strips them down to just basically a label, a functional thing, not the human story of, well, as we know now about what we call NG Ten. What was his name? We of course we can't know that, but these people had names, they lived lives, they they had relations, they they some of them you know were possibly responsible for you know incorporating the or sorry inaugurating this the the monumental um structures you know they were the ones perhaps some of those buried in newgrange and Nouth and Douth were the ones who as the myth suggests were the ones who said right we're going to build these big monuments and we have reduced them to just labels in in appendix appendices yes at the back of a book Appendix A, Appendix A will deal with the human remains, and and there are descriptions of the bone fragments, and they've lost all their human humanity and all their humanness. They're just things, items. They're just evidence. They're data for us now. It's it's the you reductionist know? scientific viewpoint, really, isn't it? And at one point, these people were very precious to their immediate family. They, you know, it's like where. Where did we lose that? You know, where, do, where, do, where, where, where did, where did human remains suddenly become just you know fair game? I don't know, but because uh, I'm fascinated by it too. I'm not. Yeah, you, 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 I'm you, part you, of the problem. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not looking at this uh, from some you know elevated uh, you know uh, moral platform. Yes, and uh, I'm, I'm not pontificating. I'm just asking the question and it applies to me just as much as it does to any of the specialists, any of the archaeologists and scientists. It it definitely applies to me because I'm equally fascinated, of course. Why, why are we so interested in the stories of those of the past? In indigenous cultures all around the world, the reason they were important was because they were ancestors and they were the ones whose existence, existence led to our existence. Yes. And so we honoured them for that. 
but now we see them as yeah data yeah great let's <laughs> let's 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 find out what people in the past were like and what they did and we just seem to have this it's forensic on one hand but it's also a little bit um neurotic i think you know it's like why why do we want to know all these things what when are we ever going to answer the questions about ourselves when 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 we do or, all this? or even ask the questions what, about ourselves are we avoiding oh without a doubt you know without a doubt. we're avoiding putting ourselves under the microscope and i don't mean the physical microscope i mean the metaphorical one are we are we doing exactly as Jung said? We're we're doing anything to avoid that painful journey into ourselves that every one of us needs to make to grow in order to grow. You know. Yeah, I I think that exact thing has been very much exposed with, uh, especially our first lockdown here in Ireland, the three months that no one was allowed basically go anywhere. A lot of people found themselves with a hell of a lot of time on their hands, mm. and some people, you know, some people thrived because of whatever reasons, and some people you know wouldn't have because just that time by yeah. yourself yes you know the, like people give out about the commute and they come out give out about the nine to five and about the rat race but it serves a purpose somehow it makes them feel normal well it, it, it distracts themselves from themselves i think i yes. heard a great quote recently from uh, i think it was saint francis of assisi what we are looking for is what is looking i thought that was a a cool one and it's it there's something that rings true about that quote in relation to digging up new grains, you know, you're you're digging up these things and you're you're looking, you're constantly looking for new information, new discoveries, new finds, new henges, something you you know mm. you, you're constantly looking. But what you should be looking for or trying to get in touch with is what's doing the looking. Yeah, it's it's yes, it's certainly an interesting viewpoint in relation to the lockdown. Um, I mean, I would personally say that the pandemic has had a few silver linings for me personally uh, definitely um and I'm, I'm definitely enjoying not commuting to dublin to work definitely that's one of them i have more time and more energy for other things that have more time for my family which is important um in terms of how people have dealt with that and it's different for everybody of course unfortunately i think you're going to see a substantial uh mental health issue um in the wake of this you're going to see a lot of people who ha had issues with their mental health beforehand who have now substantial extra challenges as a result of it without a doubt people who are in inclined to suffer from for instance anxiety and depression i'm thinking first and foremost of that type of person uh people who are dealing with domestic abuse situations who suddenly find themselves locked in the house with their abusive partner all that sort of stuff um so i think that's going to be a significant uh, and we're not going to realize the extent of that for a year or two and we may well fingers crossed touch wood say your prayers and all that we may well hopefully when we come out of this and i believe we will come out of it uh, we may well find that we've a much bigger problem to deal with when the immediacy of COVID-19 has gone away and when we have a vaccine or when sometimes with these things, I know Trump said it and he was, it was greeted with great controversy and, and, and it was right to be greeted with controversy. But like you do find like, like SARS was the first version of this, wasn't it? SARS was like COVID version one. Uh, this is like a new version of it. SARS went away, you know, that sometimes these things dissipate over time maybe herd immunity is part of it and i'm not really wanting to get drawn into 
because I, I'm, I'm, I'm very careful and, I, and I'm, I'm with the scientists on this. I'm not an anti-masker and I'm not an anti-vaxxer. If a vaccine comes along and it's proven to be safe, I will take it. Of course I will. Um, but I believe that there'll be a problem after COVID has kind of started to subside. And that problem, actually, I believe it's manifesting itself already. Um, there's a lot of people have basically gone sorry i have to be very careful with my words here because i don't want to you have to be very careful not to stigmatize mental health because it's a huge issue and it's widespread and it's far more widespread than we would ever admit oh it's rampant absolutely you know? rampant yeah so yeah. you never I, I never belittle those who are suffering uh but some people have literally cracked up under the strain of working from home or being out of work being cocooned being trapped within four walls all day long and that's manifesting itself in different ways it's i believe some of the way it's manifesting itself online is in trolling and anti-government rhetoric and fascism and you know racism and trolling and all that sort of stuff um it's that's one of the signs of it you know but in a year or two's time i think we'll we'll probably begin to see and we'll begin to realise. I think when history, uh, when the history books are written about this period of time, one of the things that will be said is a total lockdown was a bad way to go. Yeah, no, I'd be inclined to agree with you. Because, well, now what you're seeing is we've we've learned the lesson. We can't keep shutting the entire country down. It's had yeah. too much of a drastic effect. You have to have localised lockdowns and all that. Grant. So we're learning as we go along. But one of the things that will be written, I believe, in the future about this period of time is a total lockdown and restricting people's movement was the wrong thing to do. It, it was it was containing the virus, but it was doing so much other damage, economic damage, mental health damage and all that, uh, that it, it ultimately will have been seen to have been the wrong approach. Yeah, and look, as they say, hindsight is always twenty twenty, And I think... Hindsight's per- a great thing. Yeah, it sure, it sure, you know, is, it sure We're is. all experts when we're looking back. Yes, yes. You know? And I remember at the time when lockdown happened um, and the whole country came into a shutdown, my own personal thoughts on it was that it was an overreaction, but that sometimes an overreaction is the right reaction. We didn't know what was happening. Mm. We had this ghostly virus thing that seemed to be coming towards us. Let's just shut everything down, take a deep breath and kind of see where it goes. Yeah. Um, unprecedented times yeah oh absolutely we haven't really dealt with anything no and like we've had on a worldwide scale exactly even though it's been forecast for years that it would happen you know now now we've seen it at last the predictions have come true and now we know the potential for the future in terms of this may be the first of a series of these things to happen and we've got to alter our behavior in order to make sure these things don't continue to happen. And of course, well, look, when you're, look, it doesn't matter. The, on the bigger scale of things, we're just the pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan referred to the earth. Absolutely. Suspe- all, suspended in a sunbeam. You know, all of the people who've lived and died, all the human beings have lived and died on this small planet. We haven't had any fatalities on, on the moon or we haven't gone to Mars yet, so you know that that may happen in the future. Um, we so we, we we just convinced ourselves that it was okay, even though the alarm bells have been ringing for decades. We convinced ourselves it's perfectly okay for us to hop on a plane and go to a business meeting in Brussels or in London or whatever. 
We don't think twice about it. It's just as normal for us as getting in the car and driving to the office five minutes away. And all of a sudden, Mother Nature is saying to us, look, you knew this was wrong. And I kind of tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. And now I'm forcing you to actually do something about it. In 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 this, I mean, I went to the the United States with my wife in November. I was I was given a lecture about drone engine at Princeton University. Wow! And little did I know when we came back on the plane in late November that within the space of a few months, not only would America be riddled with this virus much more so than a lot of European countries, uh, but that uh, air travel to and from the states or to and from different parts of Europe would suddenly be a very difficult thing because, well, the number of flights, of course, plummeted, uh, reduced massively. But then all of a sudden you had this, well, if I go there, do I have to quarantine? So if you if you want to go to a certain country, you have to, the first thing you have to do is isolate for two weeks. Yeah. That suddenly makes a, bi- a one-day business trip a 15-day business yes, trip, you know? Course, yeah. and, 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 and so it's a different, all of a sudden, a very different scenario, isn't it? You oh, know? completely. Anyway, what's the point? Sorry. No, no, why, no, did, no. Why, did, why did you drag me down this rabbit hole? I'm blaming <laughs> you. It's your fault. <laughs> I didn't know. When I sat down here, I didn't. I honestly didn't know where this was going to go. I had a feeling we'd talk about Drone Henge. Uh, this is the wonderful thing about this, and this is why I was so anxious to come back, is it's just, it does not feel like uh, an interview or anything like that. It doesn't remind me of anything I've ever encountered in terms of, you know, people. It's It's just a free discussion and it goes where it goes and this is one of the wonderful things about your podcast and i've listened to several of your other guests and it's just literally you can take a turn and go down this avenue or this avenue or this avenue and there's no uh, agenda no none you're you're not coming here and saying no anthony i disagree with you and you're not going to labor that point you're not not talking (laughs) over me you're not berating me for we're just having this wonderful free-flowing discussion yeah i I love it i wouldn't have it any other way and with you in particular, I could have made a list of things that I wanted to talk to you about because we've, we, this is what your third time on now. So we, we've never mentioned, you mentioned it briefly earlier, the radio thing. I want to talk to you about the Morse code thing. I want to talk to you about the brass band thing. You have all these different avenues. And if I had a list of things in front of me that I wanted to, to cover with you, then I don't know, it just takes the naturalness out of the, yeah, the yeah, conversation, of you know. Of course. No, um, I, 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 actually, it struck me that I should say that while we're on air is that one of the reasons I was so delighted when you reached out and asked me to come back was because I've, I've done a lot of radio and TV and a podcast and interviews over the years. I've done a, hundreds of hours and I have never encountered a scenario like this where it's just totally free-flowing and i believe it's very valuable because i uh just uh, because it's so free-flowing i i suddenly i mean the thing about nanorobots going into mounds <laughs> i never thought that thought before today and there's something now that, that i believe this these conversations are very fruitful i also believe that it's very important in terms of a record like please don't take this the wrong way and I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way. It seems that I'm becoming famous, right? And, and, and I, I, I don't seek fame. I'm, that's not, I'm not interested in fame. What I'm interested in is the things that I'm passionate about and sharing that passion with others. 
it may be that in time people will refer to this material in the future and go, you know, this was just before Anthony Murphy became a household name. And it's just nice to have that stuff there so that people, it's like a lovely sort of historical record, you know. I don't know if that makes sense. You look no, no, very strange. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm nodding in agreement in my, in my head, whatever about my face, because I listened back because I, I had nearly a two year break from doing the podcast coming back. So especially with yourself, I would have listened back to a couple of our previous conversations and listening to me two years ago. It's, it's so valuable for me, just on a real personal level. You know, having having that, and especially when I was speaking to Ivan McQuillan, who introduced me to psychedelics, I'm listening to myself quizzing him on what he knew. And looking back, I now know more than I think Ivor knew then. But he's obviously pro- progressed, so he knows yeah. more now. But it's funny listening back to the the less educated version of myself. Like that's been immensely beneficial. Well, for I me. think look, the the greatest thing of all, and this is something my study of Jungian psychology, uh, something I became interested in about three or four or five years ago, was was Jung. Everybody who studies mythology eventually encounters Jung anyway. And the wonderful thing I've discovered about Jung is that Jung believed, uh, among many 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 things, that the greatest journey that you make in life is is your own journey, right? What Campbell refers to, Joseph Campbell refers to as beating your own path through the wilderness, not following the predefined paths that are there already. Going off the lead in in my terminology. you know, (laughs) and that journey of self-discovery. Now, what people possibly don't know about me, but I like to think that they do, having read some of my books, is I am incredibly self-critical. I mean, Fran... To a ridiculous degree. Yeah, yeah. I'm the sort of person who, if I pick up my book and I read a page of it, I'm like, oh, geez, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> what a dope. Do you, you have know? the flip side of that? Yeah. I mean, I understand, you know, yeah. I, yes, of course. There are like moments the, where I'm like, do you know, Anthony, that that chapter of that book is is among the most beautiful things you've ever composed. Okay, I'm glad to hear you have the the flip side. Yes, of course, of course. But I'm intensely self-critical. Yes. Intensely. Um, Always, always of the opinion that I'm not an expert. I'm learning. Yes. And as far as I'm concerned, I will be learning until I draw my last breath. And that I'm happy to be that way. I have been critical of others in my life. There's times when I've been less mature. There's times when I've been when I've projected, which is a big thing in, in psychology, is you, you project your deficiencies onto others. I've I've said and done things to people that hurt their feelings that I regret. I'm I'm fucking human, right? Yes. Excuse the, the language, but and, and that's one thing I don't like doing. Actually I don't like using language, but sometimes you just it it's the best way of expressing I'm human, right? So being human, you realise that you have this ego projection. You have this mask that you wear. You have this persona. Uh, and are you able to, as a person, to take that off and put it to one side? Are you able to park the ego, take off the mask, realize that the persona is something that, you know, you're you're performing? Yes. Right? Persona uh, is personal to you but at the same time it is your public face it is your public uh what what you would say it's your, 
it's your public personality or your characteristics. When you take it off and you park it, how, are you are you able to look at the delicate, fragile, fault-ridden? I would say, <laughs> which is another way of saying you know that you, you're a, a sinner. You know there there are some aspects of Christianity that are valuable, right? No doubt. Uh, that are you able to look at that, and are you able to meet your own gaze in that mirror, the mirror that Jung refers to as the one that faithfully reflects back at you exactly who you really are, not the persona, not the mask that you put on, um, and. That the reason that's important, and it's more it, as far as I'm concerned, it is a critically relative to where we are in the world right now at this moment. Because there are a great number of people, mostly in the Western world, um, who are full of hate and full of anger and full of vitriol, who are projecting onto others, mostly in minorities. Um, their own deficiencies as human beings. Um, so behind that confident public speaker and writer and presenter of myths and monuments and all the rest is a, actually a, a fragile human being who realises his own uh, restrictions, his own faults and his own mortality. And I think that's been most important to me I always get nervous when I'm giving talks and I'm being asked questions by an audience I'm almost I'm always conscious of my own shortcomings I have a big library I have 880 books um, and it projects the image to the public that he's well read he knows everything but my attitude is shit, I haven't read nearly enough of those and I haven't memorised nearly enough information from them. As far as I'm concerned, I am coming from a place of deficiency, not a place of absolute knowledge and confidence. Yes. I am always coming from, and I'm nearly apologetic half the time when I say things like, I'm not sure that this is the case and if I'm wrong, you know, and I always kind of try and always say that. It's always just realising limitations of your knowledge. What is it? There's a very famous quote that I can't remember who it was attributed to, but it's something like this. Um, the wise are full of doubt and the confident are f the and the, the, the fool is full of confidence. Something yes. like that. Yeah, no, I get the sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, that the wisest person, I believe, is the one who always realizes that there's more learning to be done and there's more growing to be done which is, I think, a term that Jung used. Uh, if your listeners are interested at all in what I'm talking about, one of the things that I would highly recommend they read is one of the biographies of Jung. Not his own work, because it's quite wordy and it can be difficult to read. Read uh, Maria von Franz's, uh, she was a colleague of his, her biography of Jung. Read Lawrence van der Post's biography of Jung. And if you want to read Jung's work, uh, a very good place to start is his book that's called 
Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Modern Man in Search of a Soul? Yeah. Um, because Jung... Now, Jung died in the 1960s. But Jung's work is more relevant today than it was in the 20th century. Jung looked at all of the ailments of modern society. This is pre-internet. This is pre-hopping on a plane to go on uh, to a business meeting in London, hopping on a plane to go on holidays in Spain. This is before all that. Uh, He examined all the maladies and the ailments of modern Western culture and life and society and capitalism and all that goes with it in city life and uh, was able to 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 find i think the root causes of a lot of the mental uh, illnesses of the modern era of course the two things go hand in hand for god's sake you know one of the things that is prescribed apparently by a lot of um uh, uh, a lot of practitioners who would be in the mental health arena is you need to get out more, you need to walk more, you need to get among nature more, take a walk along the sea, along the river, go out and see wildlife. <laughs> and there, in that simple statement, you have, uh, you have, in, in a, it's a broad stroke, okay, fair enough. It's a broad stroke on a canvas, and, a, and I'm being general, I'm not being too specific. But there, in a general form, is one of the biggest maladies, one of the biggest sicknesses of what we've just been talking about about getting into a train or a bus or on into your car and getting into traffic jams for two hours in the day to go to a, a job in an office in a city where you're boxed in all day long with people that, let's be honest, if you had the choice, you wouldn't spend much time with. In some cases, I actually happen to get on very well with a lot of my colleagues and I certainly wouldn't say that about them. But I think there's a lot of people who go to jobs that are not fulfilling. They work with people who don't uh, bring anything any joy to them they're completely deprived of nature and 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 then people wonder why am i depressed why am i anxious why am i mentally ill why am i suffering these ailments you know that's that's a big part of the reason why one of the things that i really love about the hobby of photography is that it puts me out into the landscape and it gets me out of these four wall situations and it it puts me out there and especially at the times of day I tend to be active with photography especially the twilight hours dawn and dusk basically yeah it's very special it's very special seeing the world come alive in the morning but especially seeing the world go to sleep in the evening and watching the stars come out and listening to the last bird song and seeing the first bats come out and seeing the salmon jumping out of the water to de-lice themselves and all that stuff that you see that you would never see otherwise because you're stuck indoors doing the habitual things you know watching soap operas on tv killing your time wasting your valuable time doing stupid repetitive things convincing yourself that my worth is derived from my work or my worth is derived from you know these repetitive habits that i have and not realizing that there's a much much greater existence out there you know the very best thing you can do as a human being i believe is 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 yeah it's to grow and it's to grow by uh interacting with your fellow human beings and the world in a meaningful way and what we've been doing is we're interacting in in what are largely meaningless ways we're serving the bank manager oh very much so you know, absolutely first yeah. and foremost we're serving the bank manager 
we're not serving our own interests and we're not serving our own self-preservation as much as we like to think we are we build up all this uh, sense of permanence around us uh, you know by by building houses and living in them and and owning all these material possessions that we, we we give ourselves a sense of importance and permanence but really we're just passing through what is it uh, proximo says in gladiator shadows and dust you know shadows and dust shadows and dust yeah that's all we are shadows and dust he says it just before he gets killed this the all the centurions come in and stab him in the back he's he's the guy who who trains the gladiators you know he's played by oliver reed in the film i remember this it was oliver reed's last performance he died during the making of the film shadows and dust and i think when you realize that when you actually truly realize or come to some realization of it i think i some people have near-death experiences some some people have had very bad accidents or diseases i don't want that but i want as a healthy person to realize my mortality Oh, absolutely. You know, and to realise that your time is short and that it is, it is important to... Now, I, I'm the sort of fellow that... Um, I I don't always practice what I preach either. Like it's, like the rest of us. You know? So, um, I do invest in material goods. You know, I, I do have hobbies. I, I buy drones and cameras and ham radio equipment and, you know. So, it's not like I'm... I'm it's not like I've I've denounced the capitalist materialist world and gone off to live in the jungle. But there's a I think there's a there's a halfway point there because I think you can't you can't jump out of it completely unless you know you want to live in a cave and you know eat whatever falls out of the trees. But you 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 know you can there's a midway point between having seasonal clothes so you know the the the, the t-shirts you wear in january and the t-shirts you wear in february do you know that kind of way like and really buying into the hyper commercialization and mm-hmm. all that there's a midway point between that and living in the cave do you, do you know that kind of way yeah, like, yeah, we yeah, can, yeah. like i've always said like i want to be self-sufficient and i want to be kind of off-grid and i want to do all these things but i also want fiber optic broadband <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's <laughs> not exactly <laughs> off-grid is it <laughs> But you, you know, know, but you know what I mean, like, yeah. and I think that I think too many people who, like, you're, most people are just up to their eyeballs in this thing. They're so steeped in capitalism, basically, and advertising. Well, serving debt, yeah, and so, serving exactly. They're yeah. they're so steeped in that that when they think about getting away from it, they say, "Well, there's no point in doing give, getting away from this, this, and this because that'll only put me into that, this, and that other thing." So to hell with it. Yeah. But I think if more people just did a little. Do you know that kind of way yeah. it go a long way? Because I keep hearing this idea that we're, we're ruled by the corporations and Facebook and Twitter and Google and all these massive corporations. They're the ones with the power. But it's us as individuals that feed them that power. Yeah. That last point is very apt. And I'll tell you how it ties into my own scenario. Because I was just talking to my good friend and co-author Richard Moore last night. And we talked about this, about, you know... You can empower yourself to a degree. And it's very easy to become a victim and to become a statistic of the system. Of course it is. And look, at the end of the day, we all have to pay taxes and we all have to, you know, have a driving license and we all have to have an an identity, a social welfare number and all that stuff. We all have to have that. You can't can't really not have it. The the sort of people who truly live off the grid are very 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 unique and and 
and, and, and very hard to find you know because most of us have to live in the system to some degree but it's the extent to which you empower yourself so one of the examples is in my my case i I, i'm a writer one of the things i do is i write and i was talking to richard moore about this last night it's like it's such a simple thing what do you need to do to become a writer (laughs) you need to write and do you know the number of people who are potential authors and who have very good books in them, who never write because they make all the excuses in the world as to why they can't write. And I've heard it and I've experienced it, and it's the one piece of advice successful authors always give to budding authors is, first and foremost, you must write. You must find the time to write. As an experiment, uh, because I was very busy, uh, not so busy now with the lockdown, little bit more time to to write and do other things but when i was at my busiest in life so commuting to dublin full-time working trying to run mythical ireland being involved in the brass band being involved in other things of course family my god there's seven of us you know i have five kids so domestic life is busy very busy i was like making all the excuses in the world like ah i can't write because i've no time to write i forced myself to find the time to write Actually, I wrote a very, what I consider to be a lovely book, uh, The Cry of the Sebak, which is uh, my first proper novel-sized work of fiction. I had written a novella uh, a few years previously, The Land of the Ever-Living Ones. But I wrote The Cry of the Sebak, and I forced myself to find the time, even a few minutes in the day. Do you know what I did? I found, for instance, I was carpooling with my brother to go to Dublin so one day he'd drive next day I'd drive next day uh, you know he'd drive when he was driving there was an hour I was sitting in his car doing nothing (laughs) listening to the radio I started writing when I was sitting in his car going to work at lunchtime some of the days uh, in work I was like I was realizing I was just killing time you know it's like either stay at the desk and work or go for a walk or whatever I decided some of the days to go out to the car and grab a notebook and pen and write And then I found there was these 10 and 15 minute windows in the evening where I could sit down and write a few words. And you know what? After six or eight months, I'd written a novel. Yeah, absolutely. I forced myself. Um, There's such progression in that, though, because if you hadn't done that, you would have spent the rest of your life, you know, wanting to be a writer. I could have. have You know, that that would have always been there, but it would have been the same. So now you've done that. you've, You've kind of breached that gap. And now you might view yourself as only having one book of fiction behind you, but at least it's a, it's, it's, it's behind you. You've moved on. You've yeah. progressed. Yeah. And, and in fact, what it, what it made me realise was that you've got more time than you think you have. Now, now to a certain extent, you have to, uh, what's the word? You have to marshal your time. You have to, you have to manage it. You know, it's, 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 some of it's to do with time management. But I'm the sort of person, by the way, you know, you get all of these executive types and all these companies who believe we're going to try and maximize the productivity of our workforce. We want to get more work out of them and more and more and more. How do we do that? Do you know what's actually very important to productivity is downtime and hobbies and relaxation. A holidays. Not yeah. filling your bloody time with more and more and more work. Because what's going to happen? You're going to crack up. You're going to have a breakdown. You're going to get physically sick because you're just working all the time. Yeah. Unless you really, really, really love your work, which 90% of people don't love their work that much. 10% of people are doing something that, they're, that they like. 
Or at the upper limit, I'd say. Five percent, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So, um, very important to me in my ability to function and do all the things that I do. Very important is variety. So people say to me, hang on a second, actually. hang on, you write, you do mythical learning, you take photographs, you make videos, you're in ham radio, you play in the brass band. You know, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I actually need all that to function at the level that I function at. It's very important for me. So uh, the past week has been very busy for me. Uh, I went to Sligo. I, I had to file a lot of photographs. I had to make a video, which took me two days to make. I had to write a script for that. I wrote 2,200 words and I ended up realizing I, had, I only needed to have half as much. And I had to <laughs> cut half of it out. And then I ended up sort of kind of quite tired, you know. And uh, so one of the evenings I was like, what am I going to do now? I need to I need to I need to I need to there's this need to on Saturday I sat down and I made a list of stuff that I needed to do and I got it all done so at the time Monday came around I was like okay Anthony you're starting your working week and you're tired what are you going to do this evening going to do ham radio going to sit and just talk to people and I'm going to do a bit of Morse code just to totally get out of that work right structure you know um absolutely always following an agenda and absolutely always having to organize yourself is having the freedom just to to do something different some days it's take the camera out and go out into the landscape and when i do that i disappear for several hours and i'm walking along the lanes and walking on the hill of tower or the hill of slain or walking at new grange or whatever and maybe i'm waiting for the stars to come out and eventually i decide to go home and when i get home i feel totally refreshed totally plugged in you know there's an expression uh, an auntie of mine who passed away only recently uh, had it just encapsulates what you're, what you're getting to there. She says that it's important to leave space in your head for the butterflies. <laughs> Lovely. And it's just, that, you know, because if, you, if you're all mythical Ireland and you're all henges and you're all T2Bs and all this crack, you know, you need, you need to separate yourself for that and to let that kind of percolate. Do you know what kind of way? Uh, absolutely and, and to digest I, it i i think it is uh i think it's quite a neurotic thing to expect humans to function like robots yeah very much so yeah. we are humans so what we forget with all our science and all our technology what we forget as humans and this is again young and 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 probably other psychiatrists as well uh what we forget is we have basic needs as humans we have emotive needs we have spiritual needs we maybe some of us consider ourselves to be atheistic and don't believe in any of that superstitious nonsense. We actually still have that doesn't mean we don't have spiritual needs. We have innate needs as human beings, requirements in order to uh, in order to feel that we're alive and living. You know, no, what are many people are going through their lives pretty much dead. Yeah, robotically. Yeah, bouncing off the walls. Wondering, by the way, at the end of the week, when they have a few minutes to sit down and think about it all, wondering, what the hell am I doing? What am I doing? So uh, I'll give you an example. A very good friend of mine uh, is the filmmaker Martin uh, O'Donoghue. And uh, Martin and I have done a bit of work together. Um, uh, Martin told me, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but he told me he met, a, he overheard a guy on a bus one day, an older man, you know, and he was talking to one of his friends. He saw one of his friends on the bus said, Oh, you, Jim. Well, Mick, what's the story? Ah, just going to Dublin. Just killing the day. And Martin was like, 
he was so moved by this idea that the guy was just getting on a bus to go to Dublin to maybe go to one of the museums or whatever to maybe go to one of the shopping centres to literally kill the day and I just thought in agreement full agreement with Martin that what a horrendous thought that you would come to the time in your life where you're literally considering that you're killing time that you're just killing time it is the most desperate situation for a human to end up in to to, to waste this most precious of all your human resources is your time to waste it by killing it it's not just thinking about passing it when you think in terms of killing it you're thinking about being violent against it because that's how much it's gotten you down the drudgery of your life that you want to kill time I consider that I don't have nearly enough time to do what I need to do in this life the idea of killing it is completely alien to you I said to Richard last night I need 48 hour days and 14 day weeks (laughs) definitely in favour of 4 day weekends by the way (laughs) you know there's and this idea that I would ever get into a moronic or or or, or, uh, a a totally desperate or stale state of life that I, I, I would need to kill time by God if I had more spare time I would write more books you know, I would do something. Um, but the other side of it is, um, you know, those perhaps who've had the most fulfilled experiences or the most fulfilled lifetimes, or perhaps the monks, those who just spend a lot of time in quiet meditation and who don't feel the need to fill their time. It's funny know? because I was going to ask you, did you meditate and what your thoughts were on it? Because you... There's a lot of crossover between ourselves. Uh, a couple of things that stands out is our our, our kind of our broad array of, in, of interests. Mm. So I run a vertical farm. I have this podcast. I have um, I'm a, a martial artist, and I have all these different things that I'm kind of I'm, I'm interested in. But one thing that I've noticed, and let me back up a bit pre covid and pre the lockdowns and all the rest of it i was flat out down here and i had lads working with me and there was a bit of a buzz around here and everything was flying and everything was great but then when the lockdown came and then when we came back i got back working but the two lads are still to come back so i'm down here by myself an awful lot of the time so i'd be maybe 40 hours a week down here by myself Mm. and you know it's it's not solitary confinement but when there's nobody else there is it kind of solitary confinement and what I found is I have to be listening to a podcast I have to be listening to music I have to be yeah. doing something but that that becomes relentless and it, be, it I've noticed I'm trying to escape from myself mm-hmm. I have to be doing yeah, something yeah. I have to be doing this I have to be doing that I have to be doing the other because if I'm not like if the radio is not the radio but if if I'm not listening to music or a podcast all I'm left with is my thoughts and now, I have an excessive amount of time by myself, but you can see how the thoughts turn into rumination and you start kind of... I, anyway, tend to start spiraling a little if I have too much time by myself. It's just something that I've been made aware of because yeah. of COVID, I suppose. And again, it's it's nothing more than just a, a growth phase for me. Like, Well, I think it's very interesting because it's very pertinent because I think probably the very best way that you can learn where you are at your growth stage in terms of your own personal development as a human being and as a spiritual being is is to put yourself in a room on your own for a while. You know, how quickly do you 
reach the I can't stand being here with myself yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, if it's taking you several days, I think that's pretty good, to be honest, because there are people who wouldn't last an hour in a room on their own with their own thoughts. People, people are professional and who, from the outside, have all the hallmarks of success. They've got a nice house and a Mercedes and plenty of money and they go on foreign holidays and they wear nice suits. But who, if you put them in a room on their own for an hour, might absolutely crack up. Yeah, without a doubt. Because that is the sum total of who and what they are. Is their professional existence or whatever it happens to be. Maybe it's their personal life that makes them. But um, it's interesting that um, I've been called a polymath. Okay, so, so, probably not being a, a Renaissance man, somebody who's into y- y- everything. Actually, basically. Renaissance man is is a Jungian term, believe it okay. or not. Yeah, but a polymath being somebody who's not good at maths. Okay, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> I am actually quite bad at maths, right? <laughs> so it's got nothing to do with maths, but uh, somebody who has a, a vast array of interests and is quite knowledgeable in a lot of fields. And it it just so happens that the sort of person that I get on with best. That uh, is a polymath. Okay, I, I just happen to find people with diverse interests fascinating. They're for me, they're the people who are, it's most interesting to have a conversation with. For uh, obvious reasons, I suppose. And and I regret to say this, in case I'm shattering illusions. Like I'll share this with my mythical Ireland followers, and I'm sure some of them probably think that I'm a thoroughly nice guy and I don't ever think anything bad, but. I have to be honest, there are people who absolutely bore me to shit. <laughs> I've encountered people who are just so one-tracked in their whole outlook. And I pity them. I pity them. I want them. These people are stuck in this mode of thinking. And they might be conspiracy theorists or they think, you know, life is out to get them. And they're blaming and they're negative and they're angry and they're dark and they're just... They have this maelstrom of dark energy that tries to suck you in when you come into a room. And the first thing I want to do is run for the exit. I want to be as far away from these people as possible. At the same time, in my mind, somewhere I'm like, I really pity that man or that woman. I would really like for them to see the light. I would love for them to dissolve their anger a little bit by sort of expanding their view of the the world and life, by getting out more, by having more interests and Oh, I can't. I mean, the writing is the one that I started on a while back, and it's the one, it's a good fallback for me because I've experience with it from both sides. From the point of view of not believing myself good enough to be a writer, not believing I had the time to be a writer, to encountering exactly that sort of person in life. Sort of person who says, Oh, I, oh I'd love to write a book. Oh, I'd love to. But I'm, I'm just, I'm not. I can't. You know what? And when you dig in and you ask them, Why not? you find that they're just throwing up excuses. They're just throwing up all the reasons they think they can't. But none of those things are actually true barriers to them. And I just wonder to them becoming successful writers, successful as in pre- publishing a book. You might make money from it for sure. Who cares if oh, you're writing enjoying it? it. Is the, is the writing success. it, you know. And, and who knows how much of that can be, um, how much of that applies to other aspects of people's lives. You know, that. Actually, you're just throwing up a whole pile of excuses because you've gotten into a rut. Perhaps they've had bad experiences, etc. And I think, actually, 
uh, going back to the point about the mental health issues around the current pandemic, I think that, as I said, in the future, you're going to find this as a very, very prevalent issue. So why is this relevant to the discussion? I think I, I have uh, suffered very badly, I now realise, when I was younger, intensely badly with anxiety. To the point, that, sorry to cut across, but that you only really appreciate now. Yes, looking back, yes, yeah. No, I, 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 can, I totally get that. The panic that would set in when I had to stand up and perform music in front of a crowd, or stand up in front of a crowd and talk. People think I'm this confident. Out, I am now. Of course, I'm much less anxious now, but intense anxiety, and I also suffered from depression. One or two serious, fairly serious bouts of depression that affected my relationships with my immediate family. Um, oh, and everyone else, I'd imagine. It's a wonderful starting point to this idea. Well, first of all, recovery. We, we use this word recovery. Recovery from that. But also, in your growth as a human being and your your fulsome experience of life, it's very important. It starts with recognising the issue recognizing that you have a problem recognizing that there's something wrong recognizing your your f- drawbacks and your f- failures as it were but not allowing that to become the reason that you sit in a chair all day long recognizing that as a motivating factor okay that's what's wrong that's what's holding me back now how do i put that right uh, and i realize now that i could have been doing with some serious therapeutic intervention as a teenager and a young adult I mean, Fran, I'm pouring my heart out to you here now. And I know that from listening to your podcast, you have also had mental health issues, which is why I believe it's so bloody important to talk about these things. Because I have no doubt that there's people out there who look at Anthony Murphy as a very successful human being. They look and they go, look, he's, he's, a, he's a writer and he's a distinguished and he's appeared on TV and he does these musical performances and he's, he does Morse code and he's, oh, isn't he great? No, at the end of it all, I've had serious problems serious mental health issues that that could have resulted in catastrophe for me and could have resulted in the Anthony Murphy that you see today never evolving. No, oh, without a doubt, you, be, you, become, you could have become stuck in time. Do you know what I mean? Stuck in that... Or worse again, were. worse again, what Jung describes as this cracking up, this, you know, developing schizophrenia, you know, becoming psychotic and having to be having to be admitted to a a psychiatric institution and 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 medicated and perhaps never ever uh, becoming the person that every one of us has the potential to become well i think the vast majority of people have some some people have had very very poor luck in terms of physical illness and disease and all that and 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 disability um but we I, i i believe that you know Almost everybody has the ability to become a, a shining human being and a shining example of humanity to the rest of us. Without a doubt, and even even if not to, because I can I can see how somebody could hear that and think, oh, I could never reach that that height. But if you just compare yourself to an older version of yourself, that's the main thing I think is not to be like what you were saying. There, people might look at you and go, well, Anthony Murphy's done this, Anthony Murphy's done that, Anthony Murphy's done the other thing, but. It's wrong from the get go there because you're look you're looking at you're you're projecting. You should be looking at yourself and saying like this is where I am. Where could I be? 
Do you know kind of way like the only because nobody, no matter how much I try, I can never be Anthony Murphy, and no matter how much anybody else is try, anybody else tries, they can never be Anthony Murphy or Barack Obama or whoever you know. Insert whoever you're looking up to. You can never be that person. You can aspire to be maybe like them, but the only real yeah. worthwhile goal is in my mind at least is self-improvement to be yourself because you're unique we're all entirely unique I love that unique means one of a kind entirely unique is a meaningless phrase <laughs> you're either unique or you're not yeah, but you I were, love saying were, it were, anyway what is it, Stonehenge is an entirely unique monument <laughs> it's not just unique it's entirely unique you know but I would hope that in saying that that I inspire in people the the self-belief never ever to approach life as killing the day and killing the time always to approach life as right look i i'm i'm a human i'm I'm inside this skeleton and this flesh and this physical your, body that your meat vehicle that sometimes the spirit says it wants to do one thing but the the, the flesh says no can't <laughs> can't do that i mean you know at the bottom of knock last thursday i was like oh queen maves karen look it looks so splendid but the time i was halfway up the hill i was like oh jeez why, why do I do these things it's you not know? that important is it? <laughs> I wanted to turn around and go back to the car and, and go and get some food um, but it's to it's to it's it's to understand that even in the most successful people and I'm not saying I'm the most successful person I'm just saying whoever you look at in life remember that they have all had their own personal struggles they've all encountered difficulties along the way they didn't just magically arrive well some people are very privileged to be born into wealthy families and have privilege and have handed opportunities to them to grow and to, you know, to do what they do in life. But a lot of people who are end up being successful, in quotes, depends on your measure of success, of course. And it's not always materialistic. In fact, it shouldn't be materialistic. It should be a combination of things is that they are likely to have come through several episodes of crisis. Without a doubt, to have grown, you know. And and so I just want people to know that I've been that human being and I, 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 you don't you don't just suddenly arrive at a place where you're like, oh, yeah, I'd say he's fairly successful if you measure success in various uh, uh, forms. You know, if you have your, your, your bar chart, you know, like, as I said, it's not all about finance and it's not all about being a, having appeared on TV and it's not all about the car that you drive. You have to consider all of the different branches of life into the the tree that makes you the human being that you are and branches grow off in all sorts of different directions um could you name just to kind of uh, concretize it in my mind could you name some of the branches so family might be one would it or oh, yeah but could I mean, you name a few just to give me to, to flesh out that analogy in my even personal to me um well, well to, personal to you or in general to most people family so. Uh, do you know what's do you know what's an interesting one? It's influence. Okay. And I'm not talking about social media influencers, people who post funny stuff and nonsense and and think that they're important. I'm talking about uh, getting to the point in your life where you have invested enough uh, of your your time and your energy into your work that your work has influence. Yes. That. You're no longer just, in my case, personal to me, writing in a vacuum. You're actually finding that people are quoting your work back at you. 
I'd say that's cool. That's lovely. Yeah, I'd say that's so. That's lovely. But look, that's that's feeding the ego. I'm 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 talking about including all the branches, your spiritual development. And and that's not necessarily going to church or or believing in a particular deity. You might not have a religion, but you still can grow spiritually. Your growth as a charitable individual. How do you treat others who are perhaps in a state that you might have been in? in your life or that you could be in in the future how do you treat someone who's homeless or who's poor or who's got a disease or whatever you know your treatment of them says a lot about you and your own sort of development um yeah uh family i mean to me family is everything i mean it depends again on your perspective. I'm sure there's some people who've grown up as as sort of only children who, who for whom, you know, or people who've lost family when they were young, and for whom, you know, maybe they've gone wandering out into the world. Family's not a big deal to them. But I think for most of us, family is sort of, there's a painting by one of your kids, is it? It is indeed, yeah. yes. So look, I'm indeed. just, immediately I'm seeing your office space here has the computers and the books and the diaries and the cabinets and all the rest, but it has the pictures by the kids. So like that to me draws draws it all back into where, you know, we can't, I don't think, we can't expect to survive and thrive as uh, a species unless we value family. And what we've got to do is we've got to look beyond the immediate confines of our, our offspring and our siblings and our parents. We've got to look to the greater human family. Because at the end of the day, as I said, when you zoom back out and you go off into space, we're just a pale blue dot. Absolutely. And all of us inhabit this little rock in space. It's not like, you know, we project these images of territory and uh, and, and and possession and all the rest. At the end of the day, as uh, John F. Kennedy said, uh, we all share this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures and we're all mortal. And I believe that he summarised the very best uh, of the the, um, the very best hopes and aspirations uh, for humans. And one of the most important ones is cherishing our children's futures, knowing that we won't be here and they will. Absolutely. And what are we leaving for them? So by God, that's a big tree, isn't it? It, is, a lot it of surely is. But it's it's always, always, always to broaden the focus. Always take the blinkers off. Always. I mean, in my approach to everything I've written, you'll see that there's a very, very broad approach. It's like I could have just accepted or looked at things from an archaeological viewpoint or an astronomical viewpoint or the mythology, but I broadened it out to try and take. And I believe that the wider your view is, well, I mean, I think that the people who are racist and are prejudiced against, you know, uh, minorities are, are definitely the ones who have the biggest blinkers on. I happen to think that the the wider the view you have, uh, the more humanity you have, you know. Um, and I think that we have neglected, and this is part of the problem, and it all ties in with the whole conversation, actually, really, apart from the drone hinge bit, maybe. Um, we have neglected in our duties to each other in forming and developing this modern society that we have. We think we're advanced, but in fact, we've regressed in so many ways. The reason that 
um, the reason that an entire society uh, was unlikely to suffer a neurotic or psychotic episode in medieval Ireland was because everybody lived in the same village and everybody knew each other and you know uh, you were part of a bigger community and uh, this is the same with many indigenous cultures around the world you know when there was a problem it was dealt with very directly and you know nowadays there are so many people who are isolated there are so many people who are living they're part of this system as we were talking about commuting and going to a job that they don't enjoy perhaps they're coming home in the evening uh, and they're living alone in a, an apartment in a city and they're far away from where they were raised maybe they were raised in a village in west cork and they're living in in Finglas or Blanchardstown or somewhere in Dublin and they're just totally disconnected to anything that ever made them you know uh, what they remember as a child perhaps maybe they had a very happy childhood and they love going out into the fields after school and they remember walking home from school and they remember collecting leaves in the autumn and they remember going around the doors at Halloween and all that stuff that makes them part of a community and a family and maybe now that they're isolated in a box in Finglas or wherever it happens to be, they're sick and they're suffering uh, in a way that we, we can't understand. They may, as I said, they may have the nice suits and they may be able to afford to eat out and they may have a nice car in the driveway and all the rest. But perhaps they're really actually sick, you know, suffering, uh, lonely on the verge of perhaps having a fairly major episode in their lives just purely to do with that absolute disconnection but maybe also they're on the internet at night and they're being sucked into hate groups and conspiracy theories because there's no one else there to kind of guide them and say no come here like as you did in a traditional community you'd say i'm a bit worried about fran yeah he spent a lot of time on his own let's bring him back into the circle and you know let's talk to him and let's whatever needed to be done in a lot of uh, African and, and native indigenous cultures what happened was that the youngsters when they reached a certain age were initiated yes and that was a very very important part of growth um, was that your 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 elders initiated you and it was sometimes a frightful experience but it carried you over a threshold and it was a community's way of sort of keeping you on the straight and narrow as it were it may sound a little bit superstitious and a little bit sort of kitsch to us now uh, but how are we initiating ourselves now with the leaving certificate yeah that's our equivalent of initiation and what it does actually is puts an intense amount of pressure on a young adult a young human being to conform to a certain standard and to measure up to a certain standard and after that whether they do or don't uh, will determine uh, their "Quote unquote success in life." It's it's worse you know? again. It's worse again. I think than that though. Because I think the the leaving cert is a good analogy, but with the typical rites of passage, you went through an ordeal. It had to be hard to go through. It was not worth doing if it's not difficult to get through it. So you do it. You come out the other side of it, and you've done it. But with the leaving cert, it's yeah, you, you got sixty five percent. You know, you know, you, you got X amount of points. So you both went through it, but you know, you didn't come out of it quite as good as John came out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least with the with the more indigenous way and the, the kind of old, more old school way, you went through it. You went through it, and now you're a man. You're not an A man or a B man or a C man. You're just you're a man. Do you know that kind of way? So we've we've lost an awful lot 
um, by losing that that rite of passage. Well, what it doesn't value, and uh, again, I love, uh, you'll always hear me quoting uh, the likes of Joseph Campbell. Uh, Joseph Campbell was convinced that each of us must follow our bliss. Yes. Uh, it's a, a phrase he used quite a lot in his career. Uh, follow your bliss. And what he meant by that was to find that thing that lights up your soul, that makes you feel alive, that makes you feel you have a purpose in life, that you really love doing, that if you do it and you get paid for it, you'll never feel like you're working. Um, and every one of us has that capability. What the Leaving Cert does not do, and the education system does not do at all, and the late Ken Robinson spoke an awful lot about this, was it does not help you to find your bliss. Uh, what it helps you is to, as you say, conform to a certain standard uh, and to pitch people against each other, to, sorry, to pit people against each other uh, in this very competitive system where we're trying to get one over each other to get to the top. What it doesn't teach you is that actually every one of us has the potential to become an extraordinary human being in some way. At some thing, you are going to be brilliant. Every one of us, without a doubt. Now, that thing might be, um, you know, growing peas in a grow shed. Yeah. Right? Or, or writing about Mythical Ireland. Do you know? <laughs> yeah. This is the point. To you, it happens to be something that you've invested your time and passion in and you like doing. To another person, it might be, oh, well, I don't know why I would do that. It, it's but fu- everybody's different. It's funny you say that. Though, I don't because... know why you'd fly drones <laughs> o- o- over fields. Now, that sounds like a total waste of time, you know? It's funny, though, that you mentioned that the, what I do here the, with the vertical farm. I've no real interest in that. That's not me following my bliss in the least. Yeah, it's f- f- fair enough. I, uh, but no, but no, but um, in in keeping with what you're saying, it's allowed me to. Yeah, you found your bliss in other. Exactly, yeah, because yeah, yeah. I would never have found the different things that I'm involved with now. I wouldn't have had the time or the inclination to to set up this podcast or have these conversations that I get to have with people if I hadn't taken control over my own mm. occupation. So, yeah, what yeah, I yeah. another thing that COVID has has taught me is. I started this business to get out of the rat race, but what I actually did in effect was I built my own rat race. So I I, I was turning, I owned the wheel I was yeah. running on, but I'm still in the rat race. Mm. Do you know that kind of way? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until COVID came that I may, actually gave me the time to look back and go, I was just on a path to a bigger, fancier, smoother rat wheel. Yeah. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah. And that wasn't the point. That's not why I started this business. So I've I've had to reflect on it now, and I've had to come to terms of what does that mean. If you know what what am I doing down here if I'm not following mm. my bliss? Yeah. Um, but I think it's important for people to to maybe realise that you're not looking for you're not looking for the the best thing possible for yourself as the next step. If if you're if if you just take one step, I'm I'm always harping on about this idea of incremental improvements. If you could just be slightly better than you were yesterday, you don't have to be the all bells and whistles glorious you. You're not, you're not when trying you to change to the world in one day. Exactly, exactly. But this is what growth is about. It's about steps, isn't it? Yes, one it's step a gradual thing. It's not, you know, you don't just suddenly mature in one day. Life life is a series of what was it? Uh, is this uh, is this Hinduism? Is it or, or where is this from? Um, life is a series of lessons. You can choose whether you want to learn them or not, and they'll keep happening. You know that your experiences are lessons in a way, 
you you don't just suddenly decide one day. Oh yeah, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna grow up and mature as a human being today, and tomorrow I'll be certified. You know. Yes. Yeah. This I, is not the human equivalent of the leaving cert. You know, there is no standard because the standard is entirely subjective. It's personal to you. Your standard as to well, how have I? achieved how, how have i fulfilled myself as a human being you may feel 100 percent fulfilled and you might only have for instance been you know a, a shelf stacker at little for your entire career and you may feel 100 percent satisfied that you've done everything possible to, and that's fine of course it's fine because as i said each journey is your own you've beaten your own pathway through life and it's subjective to you subjective it's it's entirely personal to you um it's interesting though that you're you, you say about that's not your bliss I, I i just threw it out there as an example because people might think it's a little bit odd people sometimes find how could you ever you know like some people have found their bliss by being undertakers oh, without or doubt, tar- yeah, tarmacadam road repairers or you know beekeepers or whatever you yeah, know? absolutely, uh, and and that is why that's so. so that's so, what is so wonderful about the human experience is that everyone everyone is entirely unique. Everyone is unique. <laughs> We're all different, and we all have different uh, uh, needs, and we all have different aims, and we all have different you know capabilities, and that's perfectly okay. But what I wouldn't want to happen to any individual is for them to end up in a situation where they're like, "Oh, I need to kill the day." You know, don't kill the day. You're, you're, every moment that you have is precious so it's important uh, as far as I'd be concerned anyway it's important that if you're not seen to be active at least convince yourself that you're you're, you're taking some step towards growth yeah and even you can you, know? really, you can really take a step back from that and just appreciate that you're not doing well oh yeah by the way sometimes that requires sometimes um <clears throat> You know, that requires you just actually to stand still. Yes. As much as I've been talking about growth and progress, sometimes growth and progress actually requires you just to stand still. Sometimes it's a a stock-taking exercise. It's where you stop in your life and pause for a few days and you just go, okay, what have I been doing lately? Has it been serving me? Uh, Am I tired? If I'm tired, why am I tired? If I'm a little bit tetchy and, uh, you know, not sleeping properly, is there a reason for that? Uh, how are my relationships with those close to me? Could I do more about that? And sometimes it's literally about stepping back and breathing and stopping. Uh, you you wanted to ask me about meditation uh, ages ago and we got sidetracked. <laughs> I don't meditate and I don't do yoga. But my meditation comes in different forms. Uh, I thoroughly believe that my meditation are those times that I have spent many, 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 many hours, hundreds of hours under the stars, doing my astronomy as a kid, out in the landscape at Newgrange or Tara or Slane, wherever it happens to be, taking pictures and just just being there it, for me has been blissful many, many times. Just being present. Yeah. Uh, where you almost, you almost stop thinking. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what the definition of being present. Yeah. So that is my meditation. I, I know that... Um, uh, what's his name? Bill Moyers asked Joseph Campbell in The Power of Myth. He asked him, what is your, you know, do you do yoga? He said, my, no, my yoga is underlining passages in books. And I actually completely identify with that because I do quite a lot of that. I find very inspirational material in books and I underline it. And I make margin notes and I take notes and, and that helps me form plans for my next book or something i want to write about in a blog post or discuss in a live stream or whatever 
But sometimes the greatest progression or development, I, I don't even like those words, uh, fulfillment, growth, uh, comes at times of standstill. Yeah, when, you're give, when, you're give, when you give yourself the two seconds to actually reflect and catch up with yourself. And as I say, uh, I, I am a habitual person to an extent, but I am very spontaneous. Spontaneity is a huge part of who I am and why I believe I, I, I'm able to do what I do. Uh, so there's an episode of Live Irish Myths. Um, we discussed this off air. So just for your listeners, uh, during the lockdown, I started doing a daily live stream uh, called Live Irish Myths. I started on the 12th of March and I did 102 episodes daily, every day, That's for an hour, about an hour and a half every day. Uh, now, I'm doing them weekly now. So I did a ho- episode 117 the other day. So I'll keep doing them weekly, but I was doing them daily. And there's an episode called Synchronicity, Serendipity and Spontaneity. And those are three things that have been very important to my story. Uh, huge synchronicities, huge totally unlikely coincidences happening to me serendipity which is a form of sort of luck or you know just being in the right place at the right time sort of thing and spontaneity it's being spontaneous suddenly deciding yeah i'm getting up from the desk no i'm not doing this anymore i'm going to go out and fly the drone i'm going to do a bit of ham radio i'm going to sit and chat with the wife i'm going to not to feel that your life has to be structured all the time Actually, I think that's one of the maladies that I was speaking about earlier is that we have become so structured now that we're robotic. And when we become robotic, we I think we cease to be humans. Very much so. Yeah, 100%. We become, it's, dehum- it's we dehumanizing. Be- we become like the machine. And we do it. What we don't realize is that we introduce the whole idea of schedule and structure into our personal lives as well as our professional lives. So that, yes, I can devote... 10 minutes of my time to little Johnny before he goes to school at half eight in the morning and and yes I can read Johnny a bedtime story at five minutes past nine tonight but that's all I can fit in for Johnny today yeah whereas the spontaneity is um like one of the things I loved about the lockdown was every day pretty much except for rare occasions myself and my youngest son Finn we just went out walking we went out with the dog and we Class. just just spent and I told him one day um we were walking uh, in Drogheda because we could, go, we could only go two kilometres. It wasn't too far away from the house. We were walking along with the dog and he took my hand. He, he, he's 11, like he took my hand and we were walking along and I said, you better say it, Anthony, because if you don't say it, it's important. All the things, this is another thing that we regret as humans, the things we should have did or said and we didn't. Don't end up at the end of your life because you don't know how close or how far away that is. Don't end up on your deathbed going oh shit I wish I'd said that that day I told him I said to him these have been the most precious moments of my life yeah that's lovely how did did he react he loved it threw his arms around me ah he just loved it the fact that I said it and you you know as a man you're always men are under such pressure to be to show machismo and you know not to show emotion that's bullshit it's total bullshit it's perfectly acceptable for a man to be emotional I have absolutely I just loved that I said it because you know with some of my older kids I'd love to have had that and I'd love to have you know but with him I was like Anthony these moments aren't going to last you better say it because if you don't say it he might never know it 
and I said it. And I I just felt so good about saying it. He felt so good about saying it. I, And it was so true. And of course, after a while, you know, the lockdown relaxes a bit. And, you know, between one thing and another, we've less time to walk. And then all of a sudden they're back at school. Yes. So now I don't have that time. So I'm glad I said it. By God, I'm glad I said it. And it's just another, I think, of those things that you must do. It's so important for you to do is is to say it's not always about saying the nicest things. Sometimes you have to say what's on your mind and that mightn't be positive. But it's to say something rather than to hold it back. You know? Oh, absolutely. To, yeah. say, to say that um, so that you don't hold that in your head and, and just assume everybody knows it. Yeah, no, without a doubt. You know, I've spoken about this a, a, a certain amount of length with a past guest and friend of the show, Des Seepersod. And Des pulled into my house after, sometime after the lockdown. He builds these calisthenic rigs. That's his, his business. It's actually spun out of my business here. So the same materials that I built, the bays that all the stuff has grown on. He was working with me with this material. And I remember him kind of lifting them up and goes, Jesus, these are substantial. How much are these? And how how do you get them delivered? And skip forward two years and he, he's self-employed now. He has his own biz, business building these rigs. And he goes all around the country building Brilliant. them and setting them up. That's, it's a fantastic story. Uh, Febby Ireland, Freestanding Exercise Bars Ireland, F-E-B-I. Yeah, for anyone who's interested, just look them up online or on Dundee or on Adverse, he sells them. But anyway, Des pulled into my house after the lockdown and he was, I do give him a lend of my van when he's doing his bigger ins- installments because he can't deliver them in his own vehicle. And he pulled into my house. Now, I'd been, he hadn't been anywhere near my house in three months because of the lockdown. And I'd spent the three months basically doing up the gardens and whatever else. So I put major work into the house. And he pulled in, got the van and left. And he sent me a voice message. And it was basically saying, Frano, I pulled into your house and I didn't know if you got a new driveway or if you'd painted the house or if you'd knocked it and built another one. The place looks amazing. It looks absolutely fantastic. I must have played the voice message back to myself about 20 <laughs> times just just to hear it. But the thing myself and Des often talk about is we're so poor at doing that. Like what we'll do is we'll, let's say myself and yourself are at a, a function or whatever. I'll say to somebody else, jeez, Ant- Anthony's looking sharp, isn't he? I don't know, something about him. He's look, but I wouldn't say it to you. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. have this thing whereby mm. we, we 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 don't say it directly. Like you might go home to your wife say and say, Do you know what? I was just thinking that when I was out walking with Finn there the other day, he's my world, I love him to bits. Yeah, yeah. You'll say that no problem, but the the mm. saying it directly that I don't know, you're you're crossing something yeah. or you're doing something that just weirds us out. I don't know why it, I can't put my finger on it. I don't think it's it's not begrudgery, but there's a, it's like a cousin of begrudgery or something. I I don't know what it is. Where I I, I don't know. I yeah. I think I think a lot of people are kind of reticent about, you know, praising and saying positive things because, essentially, they believe it or not, they find it difficult to do that about themselves. Yes. Some sometimes you, you kind of need to praise yourself too. So you know, stand back and say, "Well done, Anthony. You survived today. You did well today." You know, you might have been in a challenging situation or you might have handled somebody or a row or you might have apologised to someone and stand back and say, yeah, well done. We're, I think we find it difficult to do it with ourselves so then we, we find it difficult to actually... But as you say, it's much easier to say it 
to, to Joe Soap than it is to the person themselves. Oh, I have no problem. Because yeah. you're avoiding the potential of, for the person to react weirdly or negatively. Because sometimes when you say something nice to people, I know, I think I'm a bit like that too. People have said very nice things to me at times and, and they may have got an underwhelming reaction. And that's because I'm, you know, partly it's sort of a little bit of a bashfulness or you're you're just... You know, you you want to say, "Oh, thanks, yeah, yeah great, brilliant, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm amazing, I, <laughs> brilliant," you know. But but you realize then in your modesty that well, you know, you just have to be careful how you react, and you're maybe a little bit weirded out by it. But it's just, oh, I think you you read Elizabeth Kubler Ross was one of those people who read wrote a lot about the process of dying and and you know that people need. To realize that it comes sooner than you want it to and a lot of people who die die with regrets and uh, so that's anyway that's one less that's one that i've notched off saying what i wanted to say and saying it so clearly not not holding back with it i actually told him but pretty much those were the exact words these have been some of the most brilliant and wonderful and precious moments of my life and yeah, I said it, and I feel really good that I said it. And not you know? to not to ask you too personal a question, but would do you have any memories of anything being said to you when you were that young? Because I, I would imagine your son now stands a better chance at kind of doing right by his own kids because you've done that to him. Do you know, do you know like I know? I... Oh yeah, I mean, um... no, that's too personal a question, Fran. Sorry, move on. No <laughs> yeah, what <are> you <laughs> um, yeah i mean i i certainly remember um when i wrote certain things i know my father would have sort of said very encouraging words i used to draw but i i have a i reckon i have dyspraxia um uh, would have been undiagnosed when i was a kid but i have i have an issue with fine motor control and frustration with writing and drawing and stuff but i used to draw things and my mother used to say and my granny her mother used to say you know just you're very good at the drawing you know just little things like that that kind of and when i was playing music oh you were very good today playing the music the tiny little moments of encouragement are very important um now of course the opposite can be the case where you know mary and and, and frank think little johnny is you know the best things and sliced bread and they only ever praise him yes and yes. and johnny thinks he's brilliant and he goes out into the world and he suddenly realizes that he's meeting all this criticism and he's meeting these barriers because he thought life was going to be plain sailing so i think actually a healthy situation is to have a mixture you know um you would need to be critical at times and sometimes you need to i would have a little bit of a sort of a sarcastic edge sometimes with my kids you know and I, no <laughs> yeah you know what i mean I, I i would say i would i would criticize i would hope in a way that doesn't come across just as blatant criticism but in a way that sort of is said and you know enough to 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 make them realize that you know y yes you didn't perhaps live up to your full expect or your full potential but you know here's encouragement there's some aspect of it that can't think of specific examples offhand right now. No, but I know, I, I know, I know there's been times when I've been, I've been quite sarcastic and even cutting and impatient. But sure, look, as I said earlier on in the conversation, I'm human. Yes, you know, and I think you need to be able to just, uh, you need to be able to stand in front of that mirror and see that person, 
and see the person who does and says those things. And I think once you do that, you'll always improve. Because if you see something in that that you don't like, you can improve it in yourself. If you're in denial about it, you'll just project it onto everyone else. Yes. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons that I do not now distinctly uh, like, I I distinctly dislike uh, being in the company of somebody who, who gossips a lot about other people. I find that kind of person very tiresome. Yes. You know, it's like just as if they're just, as if they're, pardon the Irish, this is an Irish uh, phrase, they think their shite doesn't smell. Yes. You know, and they seem to be engaging in a hell of a lot of projection that they just spend their whole time talking about others and usually negatively. I find that sort of person very, very draining. Because uh, in, in the worst of times, and when people are, in the middle of a crisis of whatever kind it might be in their life they are actually and they don't realize it they're going through an episode that can result in several different outcomes but one of those outcomes is that they can improve massively as a person from this negative experience that they're going through and so your hope would be that in encountering this massively negative experience maybe they're undergoing a divorce um Maybe they've been in an accident and maybe the accident is a way of life saying, slow down and think for a second. Maybe the accident is a way of saying, look, no, you're going in the wrong direction in life. And in the middle of that crisis, they're maybe down and they're feeling, you know, despondent or whatever. That may lead to them becoming a better person in the future. So it's very, very easy to sit on the sidelines and to give. I I would say never try not to anyway. Try not to engage in too much criticism of a person uh, where you can't envisage a scenario where you are that person dealing with their circumstances. And how would you deal with it rather than just sit there and throw stones, you know? So how would you deal with that situation if you were in it? How would you deal with the challenges? How do you think you would overcome it? Because you know what? You never know when it might be happening to you. It's funny because I think most people would say, I'd never get myself into that position. But the people who find themselves in that position, they never said that either. Well, let me tell you something. something. I I have seen, witnessed it firsthand. Uh, I have I have seen people who I know uh, have breakdowns, um, have been alcoholics, go through very very difficult domestic situations. Um, I have seen people who have suddenly found themselves homeless very easy to judge from the outside and say oh well sure look you know you didn't look after things so that's why you're ended up very easy to say that very easy to judge but you don't you never know the full circumstances of a person's life and what they've been going through um very very important too (laughs) Uh, i've encountered this too very very important too that if you hear things about somebody very important to make sure that you get the other side of the story and that might seem like a such a such a an almost puerile or you know simplistic thing to say but in fact it's very relevant uh, because sometimes people when you get well known right sometimes people say stuff about you behind your back and other people go didn't know that about him mm, you've marked my cards Will they then come to that person that they've heard this about and say, listen, I heard this about you. What do you have to say about that? Or I wanted to get the other side of the story. 
that's the wonderful thing about journalism despite the bad name that it has with a lot of people in journalism especially in local journalism because you live in the same town as you write people you're writing about people that you walk among so you, you can't afford to slag them off too much you have to be careful it's it's very important in journalism that you try to get a balance to your stories so if you hear hear uh, something controversial about a group or a person you make an effort to contact that person or that group say listen this is what we've heard and we're putting it to you now and you'll often find actually that they'll cancel out your information you, you, you actually don't have a story to write because what you've been hearing is BS it's nonsense sometimes it will have of course a factual basis but you'll still get a mitigating other side of the story that makes you know uh, that makes the overall just a little bit less sensational the easiest thing in the world i don't even know why i went down that rabbit hole um but it's just something that i have encountered you know and it's very important when somebody is motivated by anger or their own prejudice is sometimes very easy for them to point a finger at someone else and say yeah and and, and for people to get taken in by that so easy today in the in the world of the internet you know how many people share these pictures of share this scumbag this scumbag robbed my house today or this scumbag how do you know that that isn't a woman who or a, a man who's who's sharing a picture of somebody who's jilted them you know they've been in a relationship and and they've gone off and done the dirty and that this is just a revenge act on the internet how do you know that this person actually robbed that house you don't people share stuff they don't ever think about whether it might be true or not they just share it because they think oh well they're hardly saying it if it isn't true yeah it's funny there, there's uh it's out there in the zeitgeist this idea that it's almost as if people are, are under the impression that there's an internet police do you know, do you know that kind of way yeah. they're under the impression that if you did write something that wasn't true yes. that you know you'd be yeah. fined you go to jail your page would be taken down like I did it I, I created a, a clickbaity uh, title for one of my episodes it was when I was starting, it was a bit of an experiment in, in clickbait and it was a, a genuine effort to nefariously up my views when I started. And I put up a clickbaity title and it was it was just, it was a genuine episode, but it was all a clickbaity title. And people were saying, you can't do that. And I was like, well. I've I've done it like so. What do you mean I can't do it? Like, you just you just can't. And people couldn't get their head around that I could put something up that wasn't true mm. and that nothing bad would come from it. And the, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, you can I put know, up with it. I, see it I actually see it every day of the week. I see stuff that the 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 provenance of is dubious at best, if not completely fabricated, and people are sharing it. People, yes, people who you know, friends or relatives, and you're like. You seriously sharing that? You think yeah, that's you, true? You know better. <laughs> Come on, you know. Um, once I think I was caught. I was caught share. I was I, I caught when I say caught. Once I shared something uh, that was a bit dubious. Uh, it was about a phantom apparition that had apparently appeared in some clouds, and there was a video showing a distant city was a view. You could see it in the clouds. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a an optical illusion called, or it's actually an atmospheric illusion called, I think is it Fata Morgana or something like that. Um, and it's referred to in Irish folklore about how 
distant lands and cities can be sometimes seen as an apparition along the coasts. Mm. But I shared it and then afterwards I realised I'd been duped that it was a a fake video, you know, it was one of those. Right. Uh, So it does happen even to the best of us. But I don't share any of that stuff that has angry words on it. Share, share, share. This scumbag did this, that and the other. And months and years after that person's picture has been taken, you still see it being shared. Oh, I believe and that it, yeah. person could be a person of good reputation. His yes. reputation has been destroyed on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's, it's things have been sent to me and I see them, I look at them and my first knee-jerk is, oh my God, that's shocking. And the second knee-jerk is, hang on a second, I remember this true? from three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this breaking news story from four years ago. Like it's just doing the rounds again. Yes, basically. yeah, yeah. People are such, I, I just think that, yeah, we've become such, uh, we've become such, so involved in these fleeting moments and you know we need these cheap thrills on social media to keep us going that sometimes we just deprive ourselves utterly not just of our humanity but also of our bloody intellect and our faculties for thinking things through we almost it's almost like we share before we actually think you oh, know, without a doubt. Shoot, shoot before you draw sort of thing, you know? Yes, and literally shooting yourself in the foot, say. You know, and, <laughs> yeah, I've, I, and as I say, I have very highly respected friends and, and people who I consider to be very intelligent who've shared stuff and I just go, oh, no, you didn't. No, please. <laughs> and then you contact them by private message and say, look, that's not true. And you send them the Snopes link that proves it's not true and that it's total BS and it's totally made up. And they're like, oh, I didn't realise. Oh, I feel I feel a little bit silly. I better delete it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but sometimes too, it's... Um, sometimes. I have an issue, which is that Mythical Ireland, whether I like it or not, has a, is a brand name. Yes. It's it's a, it's a company now. I mean, I... I it's it's not a limited company. I, I'm, a, I'm a sole trader. I actually file a tax return every year for the past three years because I, I I have tax exemption on on a couple of my books. Artist's exemption. That's up. My understanding. I was just going to say if you, if you hadn't brought it up, my understanding of that is an artist in Ireland can earn up to is it fifty grand a year tax grand. free? Yeah. and that includes so writers are. And- yeah, well, it you have to obviously you have to send samples of the work, and they have to deem them to be eligible. Because I've often you wondered, can't just assume that you're eligible. Of course, you but know, I've often you wondered, have to get that status. I've often wondered would off the lead qualify. The conver- basically just a podcast, whatever about anything else that I do under um, that umbrella. Yeah, yeah, well, if you just if you Google it and you go into if you Google artist exemption and you go in, it'll tell you what qualifies and what doesn't qualify. I'm not sure that podcasts qualify or whether they're in there. But of course, you know we we consider you know creative output to be paintings and books and poems and songs and yes. things that you can look at or listen to or whatever um podcasts i'm not i'm just not entirely sure about at all but mythical ireland is essentially a brand name in a way it's like a business in a way i've i never looked at it that way until about three years ago when i realized you know that there's absolutely no shame or nothing absolutely wrong at all in in trying to make some money out of your passion it's like this i think irish people in particular some some of us have guilt around money and the possession of money you know it's, it's almost like we believe the biblical idea that you know a rich man can't enter heaven that a rich person uh, that uh, there's a better chance of a camel passing through the eye of a needle than a rich person getting into heaven and i think we kind of 
took that on too uh, robustly and 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 too literally, you know. But uh, uh, what was the point? What was the point initially? Uh, I totally lost my train of thought there. <laughs> you're grand. You're grand. I, I'm struggling to even get us back on track myself. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was connected anyway. I've lost the thread. I'm sure if I listen back, I'll be able to ah, look, join them up on a bit. I, sometimes I, I actually find that, believe it or not, that's a thing with me. I find that I lose my train of thought. Oh, God, you and me both. I, you know, and it's not just with age. This is something that has always happened to me. But I get to the top of the stairs and go, what did I come up the stairs for? You know, <laughs> and that happens. Uh, and it sometimes happens, that, especially in fluent conversation like this, that I, I, I just lose the connection of where I was going with that particular point. It'll come back to me anyway. Um, but again, just to, to talk back around the, the beauty of these types of conversations, I think it's great for people to hear, you know, Anthony Murphy, he's written so many books, he's published this, he's, he's discovered that. And he forgot what he was talking about. Like, yeah, because he's only human. <laughs> Do you know, like the rest well, of us. Well, part of the p- problem is the head is so full of stuff, you know. Like, that is an issue for me. And I that is one of the reasons that it becomes very important for me to do my little meditation, which is to bring the camera out and just to spend some time at peace in the landscape, listening to the birds and that. Because your head is so full. And there's, a, there's an exercise that some practitioners refer to as grounding. You know, like, it's a... It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a um, it's a concept that comes from electronics and that, that, you, you know, uh, it's very important to, to have a path to ground for the electricity fl- to flow through when a crisis happens, you know. And it's like we need to ground. Sometimes uh, we're full of energy and it can be all sorts of energy. It can be negative and creative, positive, constructive energy. But sometimes you just need to stand still for a little moment and with your feet on the earth and breathing in that sort of country air and, and just for a little bit just allow your brain and and all those things that are happening in there just to settle a little bit and and just to breathe and calm down and i actually find uh too that that comes across if you listen to if you watch for instance watch my youtube videos right you'll see some videos where i'm extremely calm and it's paced and it's like I come to New Grange in the evening, and then there's somewhere I'm. 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 And I look at the contrast in that person, and I see exactly what's going on. It's it's that the excitable, energetic person is just uh, operating at a a sort of a higher a higher gear, more revolutions per minute. The problem with that is that that has a toll on the physical body. Absolutely. And, and on the psyche, I'm, and, I'm sure. And how that manifests with me, which is another indication of my utter humanity and my utter sort of fallibility as a physical human being, is I get burnt out. There are f- people say to me, oh, I don't know how you do all you do. It's like, well, neither do I sometimes, but I do actually physically sometimes just collapse into a heap. There's times I, when I just literally just cannot read another word, can't look at a screen for another minute, can't have another moment of conversation. I must just relax. In some cases, I just hit the bed. You know, I've been known at times. It doesn't happen too often, thankfully. Now, it used to happen more often. But I just need to kind of collapse into a heap on a bed and just sleep for a couple of hours, sometimes in the middle of the afternoon. It's like, I just need it. Because yeah. if I don't, I'm just going to... I'm just going to be walking around like a zombie. And it's the funny thing about you shouldn't try to dress yourself up. Uh, it's very I think it's very important if people are listening 
and all, uh, there's probably about two people left <laughs> listening. They're, they're all falling asleep at this stage. But it's very important for people listening to understand that being a successful person doesn't mean that you dress up every day and that you pretend. You also have to realise your limitations. And it's very, very important that you get rest. It's very important that you, you know, it's like apparently Margaret Thatcher used to be able to survive on three or four hours sleep a night. Now, after two nights of having three hours sleep, I can tell you I would be a narky old <laughs> and I would be impossible to talk to. Um, so it's also important, even publicly, to acknowledge that, just to put that out there, just to say, look, I'm I'm not. Nobody is superhuman. Nobody, even the fittest people, aren't superhuman. You know, no, without without a doubt, and I think too often we put people up on pedestals as being, you know, whether it's Margaret Thatcher or Barack Obama or anyone else, we we put them up on a pedestal and see them as as it's almost there's a similarity to what we do with people we hold in high esteem. There's a similarity between that and you know minorities or blacks or gays or, or the other. We we other them with the with the minorities and that. It's 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 anothering. You you're, you're othering them and you're looking down on them. And then with people like you know whoever it is, uh, the president or a great warrior or a leader, we we put them up there, but we we other them. We don't see the humanity in them. We don't see their their folly. We don't see the you know their their decency. Do you know, yeah, do you yeah. Know, do you know where I'm coming from? Yeah, yeah. But again, that that's a that distance that that othering. You're separating people from you because you've separated you from you. Well, the greatest problem. Uh, of the age and it's been a sort of a, a problem that's been around for a long long time is uh, the dehumanization of minorities like the way we should be thinking and the way that's supported by the evidence is that we're all part of the one human family as i said like even regardless of race and dna and skin color and religious belief like we are all on this planet together we can we can separate ourselves with walls and borders and uh, and we can make cultural and religious differences a thing and skin color a thing at the end of the day we're all breathing the same bloody oxygen mate and if we don't start to get on and realize that well I, look i happen to believe that we are at we have arrived at unfortunately a moment of extremely threatening gravity and and seriousness for the future of ourselves not not so much the planet i think the planet will look after itself <laughs> <Planet'd be grand. laughs> well, it might necessarily be grand remember in the new we're in the nuclear age um i just happen to think we've arrived at a moment of very very great um uh, very very great possibility um, um and i don't mean that necessarily positively you know yes of course yeah it's an opportunity we have of course the wherewithal uh, uh, we definitely have the resources and the wherewithal to confront and deal with all of our problems but whether we're willing to do that is another thing you know Uh, i fear that we have entered the era that i've always dreaded uh, all my whole life from the first moment i read the book of revelation uh, and then later i got into nostradamus believe it or not although i don't believe any of that stuff now um certainly um in terms of revelation jung felt that john uh, the divine who wrote revelation was not having a psychotic episode jung actually believes he did have a vision of the future and it's frightening to be quite honest and that's the kind so jung thought he he himself jung, had one no or? jung, yes, jung yes. thought that the author of revelation john the divine 
was not psychotic when he wrote it. He wasn't having a mental, he was actually having a genuine psychic vision. A, a moment of clarity, almost the opposite of what was said. Yeah. So we we have arrived at, I believe, or we're shortly arriving at um, a fairly major event in the history of the world. Um, I'm hoping in saying that, uh, that that leads to some constructive action, but I'm not sure that it will. Because when we've reached times like this in the past, we we have we have hit the panic button. We've we've we, we've gone nuclear, as it were, and I don't mean that literally. I mean, yes, we've we've gone for the for the the Holocaust option instead of trying to negotiate around our differences and appreciate our differences and try to get on with each other. We've gone for the let's all let's let's put them in the gas chambers or let's lock them up or let's kill them or let's shoot them or whatever. And I think we happen to be arriving at another of those great moments. And this one has the potential to be the greatest because of the fact that we have nuclear weapons in the control of people who are, let's face it, less than capable of maintaining a rational status throughout a crisis, you know? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the human condition is full of inadequacies and pitfalls. And that's just in your in your average everyday decent person. But when you have somebody like Trump, for example, or even um, Boris, the other side of us, like they're they're not exactly exemplary humans. Do you know, like in a way, like they're I would consider both of them to be well, far from below, it. below par. Exemplary humans, far from it. In fact, jeez, um, we're going three and a half hours. Okay, so. I probably should stop boring your listeners some, some, <laughs> not, not sometime soon. The problem, look, the, the situation in the States is complex, but at the same time, it's more simple than people believe. Trump is not actually the problem. Trump is a symptom of the disease. We couldn't agree more. And the disease is um, mainly around racism. And, about, and mainly about projection. And this idea of the building of the wall, I always thought that was symbolic of building a wall in our own brains between excuse me our rational and intuitive natures it's like we want to cut off one from the other um which which only results in um a a mental breakdown a a sort of a a psychotic episode we can't avoid i think looking at the situation we can't avoid reaching some sort of a conclusion that uh, america is having a very very major breakdown and is on the verge of a catastrophe the problem with that is uh America basically being in control of the entire sort of Western, uh, civil Western civilization, Western hemisphere, Western society, is that I believe if if it goes, everything goes. I think we will we will we 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 will see a very very major catastrophe unfolding unless events change. Um, imagine, for instance, just I'm just putting this out there. And By I, all means, I'm not I'm not trying to portray. By the way. I'm not trying to portray Trump supporters as necessarily mentally deranged. Some of them definitely are. Uh, but a lot of them, I think, are just people who are, who are angry and who, uh, you know, at, who are at the bottom of the pile and who feel that they've been left behind by society and they don't actually realise what it is that has left them behind or, or who are the forces that have been involved in that. Um and they're angry and angry only just leads to catastrophe eventually unless it's channeled into positive action. And I don't see it being channeled into positive action. You know, we're at a moment when uh, 
you know the whole the whole of civilization could 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 topple over a cliff and the question i wanted to ask was can people imagine just imagine another 9-11 happening in america today what do you think the reaction to that would be oh jesus there'd be more cities on fire than there there currently is because the reaction to 9-11 now 9-11 was a horrific event uh, and I'm not for a second going to get involved in apologising for terrorists or anything. Um, the reaction to 9-11 was George W. Bush saying, you're either with us or you're against us. Yes. And we're going to war, right? And there are a lot of dead Iraqis and Afghani people to, who, have, who are dead now, who were alive before 9-11, who, if they were alive right now, might say, what the hell did I have to do with 9-11? It's a little bit unfair that I got killed. They've done, because they basically had nothing to do with it. All I'm saying is you can you can pit George W. Bush and Donald Trump against each other uh, in terms of, you know, um, you can weigh them up against each other in terms of their uh, their abilities and their intelligence and or lack know, thereof. their leadership <laughs> qualities and all the rest but you're you're basically getting two versions of the same thing uh, and that is ultimately that uh, you know america represents a lot of things the, the 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 mixture of cultures that has been i believe quite wonderful uh, in one in one sense but quite a catastrophe in another because white people basically fail to get on with people who aren't white that's let's call us let's call a let's call the situation as it is that white people are unable to get on with minorities it's not the opposite way around the minorities are the ones who have been oppressed and who have been deprived but the 9-11 today what's the reaction well i can only speculate but it's an angry reaction it's a very angry reaction and it probably involves starting a, a fairly major war and that would drag a whole load of countries into it. And I think you'd just see the house of cards coming down. I would hate to see it happening. And that's not necessarily how it will go. I mean, you know, um, people forget, crikey, people forget history so easily. You only have to look at the 20th century. The 20th century was horrific in so many respects. And as bad and all as World War Two was, and young actually personally had dreams uh, before the Great War in which he saw uh, Europe awash with blood. Uh, But before he died, and it's something he refused to talk about, he had visions about what we would call the end of the world. And he saw a devastated planet, large parts of it devastated. Von Franz talks about it in an interview that's on YouTube. uh, But even she doesn't want to talk about it. Um, So he was... Young was urging us to deal with the issues of our own darkness and shadows and our own projections uh, and to, to make that very urgent journey. And it just seems that, well, a lot of people dismiss Young anyway, unfortunately, in the favour of Freud, who believed everything came down to sex. Um, but if we ignore it at our peril, and I believe, unfortunately, I hate to strike a pessimistic note, but unless things, I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, unless there's a miracle. Yeah, how, how, uh, there's all sorts of um, people who are have sort of nice fluffy beliefs about how we're all just going to embrace each other, and, but like history has shown us how we deal with these situations, and uh, actually the greatest uh, of all uh, the 
inspirational uh, quotes for me comes from Star Wars. It comes from Yoda. Go for it. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hatred. Hate leads to suffering. Yeah. All of these things are negative. Succinctly put, yeah. Uh, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So this hate that we see bubbling up in America uh, is is either going to be miraculously funneled, channeled into positive action or it's going to lead to disaster. And that disaster will be greater than any of us can anticipate. It's just the micro version of the or the macro version of the micro though isn't it? i mean we we in our own individual lives we'll come across hurdles that you know you're the death of a father or a child or a loved one or whatever it is you lose your job or you become depressed or suicidal or whatever it is you uh, you encounter a hurdle and you know the, the hurdle can you can get trapped underneath the hurdle trying to get over it you might you try might go around it you might blast your way through it but the, the whole growth phase that we mentioned kind of earlier circling right back to the start i think what's that saying never let a good tragedy go is it never, never let a good tragedy go to waste there's there's opportunity in it do you know like in a way like we're, we're, we're being met with this we're, we seem to have worked our way into this frenzy and we'll either go through it as you say it'll go one of two ways it'll either end in catastrophe or it'll be the the start of a, of a new more enlightened path maybe for want of better terminology might end up being both more than likely, you know. More than likely, yeah. when it when it, and it's funny because more and more often when I'm met with, is it either or? I'm coming around to it. It's always a bit of both. So it'll be a catastrophe yeah, yeah. if you want yeah. it to be a catastrophe. And again, it boiling back boils back down to your perception. It it is what you make of it. Yeah, and and, and I'm aware of that too. And it's it's one thing that it's kind of quite prevalent in modern thinking is that if you say something negative then you're almost willing it to happen that's i don't i don't believe that's the case but we've almost sort of in, tried to insulate ourselves from saying that things can be bad yes you know it's like actually, yeah don't, I don't be negative about yeah, it yeah you know and and if you're using negative language then you know that's you know it's firstly it's an indication of your own state of mind but also it's like you're willing that to happen it's not i i don't want it to happen of course i don't but what we're looking at actually looks to all intents and purposes like the imminent collapse of a civilization the imminent collapse of an empire and yes. when those things have happened they've been generally painful uh, chaotic episodes yes uh, of course after a while something else emerges uh, from the dust when it settles the question is uh, if we get into a scenario where there's a nuclear exchange. There's no dust from us to emerge from because everything's... Well, it's not. There's no us to emerge from the dust because everything's dust, you know? Yes. Um, and so I hate to sort of, as I say, sort of be thinking of ending on a negative, but it's just something that I just have to... I felt I had to say it because it's it's all very well afterwards to say, I told you so. Yes, I you saw know? this coming. But it's like, does nobody see what's going on? I think a lot of people do, but and maybe a lot of people are afraid to say anything. But just we're across the ocean looking at it all and looking at the craziness of people on the street with guns and the potential for, you know, uh, a huge eruption of violence there after the election and everything else. And it's like everybody wants to blame it on one individual. and But actually what's happening is collective you know, it's not like everybody's doing the same. It's not like Hitler's Germany where he, he had almost eventually. But of course, it builds up over time. 
you know, the anger and the frustration builds up and builds up and builds up. And then what happens? There's, it spills over into violence and conflict and disaster, actually. Disaster. It looks to all intents and purposes like America collectively is, is having a psychotic breakdown. And I, I, I just don't believe that that can be good. Again, getting back to what I said about the, the micro and the macro, America having um, a breakdown, it, it's it's the individual, again, getting back to kind of young, it's it's everyone individually is having a breakdown that, and therefore the society as a whole is having a breakdown. So is is the fix for America, you know, we can wax lyrical here, just chatting away about it, but is, is the fix for America that people start looking at themselves and their own lives and their own relationships? Does that have to happen or is there... Can you do something more? That I don't has know. to happen, but how? I mean, I, I, I'm not sure, um, and maybe this is my failure to understand Jung fully, or maybe this is his failure, uh, and I don't believe it's a failure, but his failure to uh, to give us the right tools for the job, as it were, is how you actually do it. Because to me, the personal development and growth that's needed is something that doesn't happen, as I said earlier on. It doesn't. You don't just suddenly wake up someday and say, "Oh, I'm going to be a good human being today." Yes. Especially if you're full of hatred and bile, and you've come to believe that the Mexicans are bad or black people are bad, or this sort of stuff that's going on over there that's kind of driving people up the walls. You know, you don't suddenly wake up someday and snap out of it. You know, it's a long process, and I think that it's what I, I think. What I'm saying is, it's too late for that now. I, right. mean, we're, I think we're on the we're on the verge in the next couple of years of something very very substantially a fairly fairly substantial crisis that's going to affect a great deal of the humans on the planet has covid given us a bit of a reality check i know it's intensified things in america but leaving aside well, america, i think it's it's kind of just added to the perfect storm of the whole thing you know like despite what you so some people might be saying it's obvious that unemployment has risen dramatically, not just in the States, but in Europe as well, obviously. It's, it's patently obvious. A load of people have been laid off work. Um, and, you know, different countries have had different sort of methods for dealing with it. And it's quite obvious from looking from the outside that the States just decided, nah, it's not going to be a problem. We're going to sweep it under the carpet. Be grand. You know, and it's not grand, you know. And... Pardon me. If that's their approach to this crisis, then how are they going to approach future crises? And the future crises will come. They're coming in the form of, for instance, wildfires and and and, and dr- dramatic weather events. Yeah, flooding. They're coming and... in, in the form of disasters. And and uh, to me, uh, the uh, administration there is isn't capable. It's it's shown itself incapable. And I'm I'm not putting that square on the shoulders of one person. I believe that one person represents a much greater uh, illness. A much a much deeper and greater problem. I hope, really earnestly hope that I'm completely wrong. Well, look, you, you, you can be, but I suppose that the main thing is that you're being honest. It's just the way I see it right now. And yeah. I, I I have, I think I've, I've been a rather sort of positive person in my life and I've, I've seen the positives and the negatives and sometimes I've been very down about things and very anxious and I think that feeds into my own sort of worldview that sometimes it can be negative sometimes i'm looking for negative outcomes this one i've kind of been looking at it my whole life because i became interested in that whole 
eschatology and end of world stuff when I was young and it's something that moved me an awful lot and seemed to have a great influence on me and it's entered into my writing you'll see it in uh, The Cry of the Sebok the boy that's trying to prevent the end of the world from happening um, it's an event that has been foretold um, you know uh, it's an event that we can kind of if we're honest see coming because we just we can't have this un, un, unhaltered growth and, and this economic development that we think is the panacea, uh, the w- pollution uh, of the earth and the seas and the air, uh, climate change, which is a very real issue, uh, the collapse of biodiversity. The, these things are all coming on top of each other. Are we seriously saying that we're suddenly going to, you know, in a short time become enlightened as a, as a a, a movement of people as a, as a, an entire body of people living on the earth that we're just going to suddenly turn around in the next six months and solve all these problems. I'd love if that were the case. And actually, the stupid thing is, I believe we can. I yes. believe we have. Of course, I said it earlier. We have the wherewithal. We have the resources. We have the intelligence to solve all of the problems that we have. But will we? You know? it's, a, it's in our hands, though, I think, isn't it? As in, as individuals, do you know what kind of way? Like if 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 more of us, again, this is going to sound maybe very egotistical of me, but if if more people were to be privy to not maybe not this conversation, but conversations like it, if people were to maybe step outside themselves for five minutes and maybe get an appreciation for what it's like to be somebody else, because a big motivator for me having this platform is that I introduce people to other people who are in what I call different loops. So you're in, well, you're, you're different because you're in half a dozen different loops. I'm a looper. (laughs) (laughs) Some people have said that about me. That's okay. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So you're a looper, but introducing people. So if, if, if if somebody doesn't know anything about adventure racing or psychedelics or Irish mythology or any of the number of guests that I've had on, I think the more that we can have a window into other people's lives, the better we have of, the better chance we have of understanding that, you know, we're not all the same and our differences are there to be kind of cherished. I suppose. Yes. John Hume said that, by the way. What was that that he said? Well, he said our difference, everybody's born different. And he said that we should cherish our differences and that's the only way we're going to get on. Without a doubt. He said that at the European Parliament and and, uh, he was a brilliant human being and he exemplified that by, 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 by showing it as a political leader. Yes. The willingness to reach out to people who were different uh, as in the unionists and, and the loyalists uh, and to reaching out to the Sinn Féin and the IRA and convincing them that they should be part of a dialogue towards peace. He was a brilliant, brilliant human being. We need loads of John Humes right now. Yeah, whatever doubt. Desperately need them. Without a doubt. Yeah, I hope I'm wrong. You see, look, on the one hand, I could be here saying, ah, Trump, I think he's great, which I don't. Okay, but it's, as I say, he is a symptom. symptom. He's not... People think he's the problem. Oh, if we get rid of Trump, all no. our problems will be No, over. no, no. Yeah. The problem is still there. I, On the other hand, I could sit comfortably on the fence and say nothing. But I do feel the need to say something. And I do feel the need that some, the, the people who, I, do, I just, I just, I can see it. I can just see it. I can see it all unraveling. And it's unraveling and it's unraveling quickly. Uh, this, the United States uh, in the Obama era I don't think there's any president in the past century who has behaved exemplary in an exemplary fashion or who you could hold up as a... They've all done nasty stuff and they've all been involved in conflicts that they shouldn't have been involved in. But um, 
the America of 2015 is a very different America to the America of 2020. And if you look at it, it is, it's just unravelling. Now, if someone can come along, a John Hume uh, of American politics, to try and sort of bring them back from the brink, brilliant, I'm all for it, bring them on quickly. Uh, uh, we desperately need it, absolutely. But I couldn't sit here and not say it. It's just been on my mind actually lately. I, I, I just need to point out uh, that a lot of people who are just apparently just saying nothing and just hoping that this is all going to go away. Yeah, you yeah. know, and perhaps their silence is only helping the situation to get worse. Well, I don't know who I'm quoting, but it's it's relevant here. Uh, in order for evil to thrive, good men need do nothing. Yeah, well, I don't in particularly fancy getting involved in a conflict either. But, I'd rather yeah, just but continue. You are, invo- you are you know, involved. This is, it's like I, I I think back to Lord of the Rings. You know, it's like it's like when Sam is trying to convince Frodo to go. Let's just go home back to the Shire, <laughs> and Frodo's like, "You don't understand. If if we don't act, there will be no Shire to go back to." Yes, and it's exactly that sort of stuff. Of course. No matter what anybody tells you, if you've read Lord of the Rings, it is an analogy for the world war, the world wars of of the 20th century, despite what Tolkien might have said in denial about that. It is absolutely an an analogy uh, for those wars. Um, And that is the difficulty. I would desperately love for me just to continue in my little bubble here in Ireland and to be continued living my comfortable existence and to do the things that I do. But I think everything, everything, that we are that we are is threatened. But I, I would, everything. I would see you as fighting against that by doing your mythical liar and stuff, and doing your photography, and doing being yourself, and not yeah. not. I, I don't see myself as a political activist, to be honest. No, no, you I, know. But you're you're a political activist. You're you're a political activist, almost by default. Not 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 intentionally, but the, there's so much poison and vitriol out there online. And I think you counteract a lot of that. Yeah, I think that's a lovely aspect to it. Yeah, that I think that, that yeah, that's that's a fair kind like, of. Nobody comes comment. to Mythical Ireland to, to get enraged. Well, some of them do. do. They well. get, <laughs> like I have a video where I talk about the she power and what it means to be Irish, and I and I say that no matter how far you've come from, because like if you, Irish Irish history is that uh, until the end of the Ice Age, there was nobody here. So all humans who are currently in Ireland are descended from somebody who arrived here from somewhere else. Yes. In other words, we're all immigrants. Yes. Right? And when I've said that, occasionally you get the racist nutters, you know, banging on about how, you know, I'm 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 ashamed of the Irish race and this, that. I don't care about them. They can feck off so they can. I, I hate those. It's not that I hate them. I actually pity those deranged nutters who think that for some, somehow, uh, just ignoring the history of our island that we suddenly ma- arrived at some magic pure Irish racial identity yes. it's nonsense you know I, I said it recently you could get a, a DNA test done tomorrow as could I we could both find that there's English Viking um, uh, Bronze Age uh, we we might have a, a touch of Mesolithic and Neolithic in us we might find that there's German blood somewhere in us who knows what would turn up right it's nonsense this racism thing is absolute nonsense you pair it back to its basics we're all human and we all breathe the same air no absolutely and you can't you know you can't divvy that up but even in your you're dealing with that person you don't strike me as somebody who will just you know uh, go f yourself and block them 
depending on how bad it is, obviously. Like, but uh, in fairness, you're not fueling the flames with the trolls who are nasty and who are clearly not going to engage in intellectual discourse. I do. I just block them. Well, that's but even that in itself, before they get a chance to get started, I just delete the comment and block them. But in the interest of clicks and in the interest of views and in promoting your business, you there's the whole wellspring of of um, of views and new people that you could attract by getting into it with these people and stirring the pot and creating controversy. I'm, I, I'm, I'm very fond of having uh, what you would call uh, intellectual debate. I like yes. being debated when the subject is being debated and not the man. Yes, absolutely. When it's the, the ideas and not the person. You know, and I love actually the fact that in my exploration of Neolithic Ireland and prehistoric Ireland, and especially in the terms of mythology, I love the fact that in my work, I have never, ever tried to declare that this is the solution. This is the answer. I, I you know, nobody else has reached this conclusion except me. It's, it's bullshit. If you're if you're at that phase, then you've got a problem with your ego. The, the fact of the matter is that for every question I have asked about the past, it opens up several more questions. I don't claim to have the answers and I don't believe we ever will have a lot of the answers. But the exploration is fascinating all the same. And I would apply the same to discourse in general. If somebody comes on and says, you know, and they're willing to debate it. If somebody comes on and says, ah, the Irish, we should protect the Irish and, and don't let these immigrants. I would say, well, hang on a second. We're all immigrants. And they'd say, How, what, are you, what are you talking about? I try to educate them. Say, well, actually, at the end of the Ice Age, there was nobody here. No humans. Yeah, we all came from The first place. humans came either from Scotland or the Isle of Man in the Mesolithic. So essentially the Irish are British. How do you answer that? <laughs> <laughs> I think we had that discussion on one of our yeah, no, podcasts I think we did before. Too, yeah. but what, what, what remembering? It will either enrage them or they'll see sense. Um, they usually get enraged and go away. But, you know, a lot of people at the moment, as you know, are trying to deny the evidence. And that's a big part of the problem in the Western world now is that we believe what we read on Facebook, but we don't want to read the the texts, the history texts, the science textbooks. And I'm not saying for a second that my work is entirely scientific. It's got a lot of esoteric stuff in it. Uh, but it's, I never try, excuse me, I never try to turn turn over the science and say it's bull, the science. Don't, don't just ignore the science yes. because it's nonsense. It I always build it on the foundation that the science is, 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 is accurate and, you know, well, subject to future change in the case of the DNA, etc. You know, um, I'll debate them if they're willing to debate. Yes. But if it just turns into mudslinging, where does that end up? And that's that's the big part of the problem right now. That's what's wrong in the States and in Britain and in other places. And we have an element of it here, a growing element of it in in Irish society. Anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers and flat earthers. I mean, they're wrong. They're just wrong. And rational and scientifically minded people know they're wrong but in their minds no we're not wrong they're, the worst thing is not only do they not think they're wrong they're bloody angry too yeah. and that's a lethal combination ignorance and anger ignorance and anger have led to an awful lot of people getting killed no no without a doubt I sincerely hope um, and I'll stop boring your listeners now but I, I, <laughs> I, I, I genuinely do hand on heart genuinely hope that I'm drastically wrong in that pessimistic scenario that I've just painted. Well, look, whether you're right or wrong, from my view, you're doing more than any other person I can really name, being perfectly frank with you, 
insofar as you're following your bliss, as Joseph Campbell said, you're doing what you like to do. You're you've recon you're you've a good connection with your family. You're reconnecting with them more and more. You're on this platform and your own and others promoting what you do and how you do it and encouraging presumably other people to follow their bliss and get involved and to make a difference and to make the world a, a slightly better place as opposed to you know the mudslinging that goes on and well in so studying easy. the past the the biggest thing is that you hope you learn the lessons of it yes you hope not to repeat those painful lessons well i mean if newgrange you know? is anything it should be a, a shining example to us all that you can have something and then it can be just wiped out. Well, and, and you have exactly taken the words out of my mouth because that's what I would have sort of finished by saying is that there is evidence now of a vast complex of monuments there that was clearly built by a very organised society of people and at, they suffered some sort of a catastrophe because the Bronze Age people came in and took over. And so that, we so you'll hear some sort of very happy people's celebrating the ancestors and talking about their ancestors they're not their ancestors they're actually people who lived and died and pretty much vanished from the scene because they were taken over by events don't let that that be our story you know absolutely don't let that be our story i've said in the cry of the sebuk that there was the potential for that the we will be remembered in thousands of years to come when 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 humanity has built up again after this disaster if it happens and i say that if with great hope that it doesn't that uh, we'll be remembered as the ones who went to the moon. That's that'll be the biggest uh, myth about our time. Will be yeah, did we? Those people we? went to the moon, but they couldn't live together. Yeah, they built weapons that were capable of wiping out large portions of the population of the Earth, and and causing huge environmental catastrophe. They sent they sent people to the moon. They were brilliant enough to do that, but they couldn't just learn to shake hands and say. Listen, my brother, I know you're Muslim. I know you're black. I know you're Chinese. I know you're Mexican. I know you're Irish. I just want you to know we're breeding the same ear here, brother or sister, whoever you happen to be. And uh, let's just let's just try and get on no, and acknowledge your differences. Without a doubt, the, the human experience is exactly that, the human experience. It's not the white human experience and the black human experience. We, we're, we're all... We're all one, basically. We're all brothers and sisters on this page. Yes, but we're all entirely unique. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you for the the website address and how people find some of your work, name your books, where you can get them. It's very easy to find me because you just look for Mythical Ireland. Uh, So it's mythicalireland.com or mythicalireland.ie is the website, facebook.com forward slash mythicalireland. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram, although I just share the pictures there, uh, links to videos on YouTube. Uh, on Twitter YouTube is Mythical Ireland and all the books that I've mentioned today Island of the Setting Sun has been just been reprinted I'm going either today or tomorrow to collect copies you can buy that signed copy on mythicalireland.com you can buy my book Mythical Ireland New Light in the Ancient Past you can buy Dronehenge the story behind the remarkable discovery at Newgrange which you have a copy of there behind you and you can buy Newgrange Monument Immortality not forgetting my novel The Cry of the Sebuk and I'm still writing so well, yeah. I hope you continue to keep writing. I hope you continue to keep doing your um, your podcasts and the whole the whole mythical learning thing. I just I wish you the best of luck in everything that you do. And one of these days, when you come back and talk to me again, you're going to tell me about Morse code and ham radio and brass bands. Cause oh, we we you still know what? have. I actually would be genuinely delighted to talk to you about those things. Yeah, fantastic. No, yeah. brilliant. We'll do. We'll pencil it in for for the not too distant future. Brilliant, Anthony. It's been an abs- great fun. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. We'll have you on again, no doubt. Well, it's been my pleasure, Fran. Thanks for inviting me back. Thank you.